<laughs> uh, right. Well, everybody, uh, welcome to... Maybe welcome to the stream. I don't know. What's up, chat? Chat, can you hear us? Are we here? Is it working? <sighs> Master Signified Bodies and Derrida Bode Lacanian are both in the chat. Basically, it's like the main peeps. So, what's up, everybody? I expect we'll get a few more in here, but uh, you, you two were in here earlier when we were trying to get going. I, I mean, sure, yeah. Yeah, all right, Andrew says, what's up? What's up, Andrew? Andrew can hear us. It's official, we're streaming now. Holy fuck, everybody. Jeez. Don't. Oh, there's no buffering. I thought you said there was still buffering. Okay. Oh, well, thank, thank, pra praise Jengus. All right. So let's, uh, let's, let's kick this thing off, everybody. So I'm going to welcome people who are coming in for the first time who've never caught one of our streams before. Get the fuck out of here. Go watch all of our other stuff. I, we're not here for you. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, well, I mean, sort of. This is a special stream, and this is a stream that we're doing just for the people who've been here. So, I mean, I expect that it will be something that anybody will find interesting if they're into theory and philosophy, um, into, like, the questions, like, as to what it means to do philosophy as opposed to just talking about philosophers. It's a big thing, big, big part of what we plan on talking about today. We're also going to talk about, like how we do philosophy in terms of some practical, you know, note-taking kinds of stuff. Like, we've had people asking questions like that. Um, but we're also going to be talking about some movies and shows that have come out in the last couple of months. I've been sick multiple times in the last couple of months, and so I was able to binge stuff that I wouldn't have, wouldn't have normally got around to this time of year. And so uh, Mikey and I are both, I mean, we've both seen some of the same things, so it's like, might as well talk about that. Yeah. Oh, spoiler alert. I might put that up on the screen, actually, so that people hopping in later will see that there will be spoilers in here. If you really care a lot, just go away. Um, go watch all the things. So what we have up on the screen is what? We've got... Uh, um, I don't think it, yeah, I don't think that spoilers count for that one. So we actually got asked to do a, to do a review of Adu Lacan, which is a new film that just came out. It just got released. And, uh, I don't know. I've never, never, no, nobody's ever reached out to me and said, Hey, we're putting a film out. Will you please review it? Um, so I, it felt like a really cool opportunity, especially because it's about Lacan. And obviously the reason they reached out to us is because we've done some videos on Lacan. So, uh, so Michael, you, you just watched it, right?
right? Right, right. Oh, fuck. Are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Nobody can hear you talking right now. Why can't anybody hear you talking? This is, this is ridiculous. What, in what world? What's up, everybody? So, Mikey, Michael's talked. Yes, he's absolutely talked. I can hear him. You all can't hear him? Jeez. All right, here, let's try it. Let's try, uh, let's try this. All right. Michael, can say something. Can anybody hear me now? Am I coming through? You know what? I know what it was. Um... I know what it I know what it was. Hold on. All right. Talk again. Anybody hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, we're good now. We're good. Okay. So take 2 on the take 2 stream. All right. So Adulacon is a film that like Dave said we were asked to do a review of it and I watched it last night and I really enjoyed it and it's weird it's so weird saying trying to say what you just said over again yeah so basically what you said though was that you're you're happy that it exists because most of this most of the treatment Hollywood gives of anything having to do with psychoanalysis is just like you want to do your mom or whatever or oh you yeah. know you, you all your problems are problems with your parents or whatever and it's and it's like it's always this oh you've just repressed you've repressed some memory and now you've got to recover that memory. And then, you know, and it's, and it's basically like the ego psychology Americanized version of psychoanalysis obviously has nothing to do with Lacanian psychoanalysis. And so it, you were saying it makes you happy. And I, I agree. It makes me happy too to see that there is a movie that it has, you know, it, it's about Lacan and, you know, I mean, it was kind of weird cause I, I have like, uh, an image of Lacan because I've seen him in actual lectures and I've also like read his seminars and stuff like this. So it's like, I kind of, I expected something and then I'm getting this actor who's, who's having uh, to, here, yeah. who's having to give his attempt at doing Lacan, but it's like, you know, I'm sympathetic to the entire project and I'm ha and I'm happy that they did it. Um, and the, the, and the thing was, is I actually was thinking like probably the first third of the way through, I was like, all right, I don't know about this. And then as it kept going, I was like, you know what? Yeah, they really emphasized a few things that are characteristic Lacanian things that I don't think you'd see in any other sort of counseling, therapy, or psychoanalytic sort of sessions unless they were Lacanian. And so right. that was kind of cool. So, okay, just as a brief summary, um, what we have in the film from start to finish 
is the analysis of a Brazilian woman who was an actual patient of Lacan. Yeah, they really emphasize and a few things that are I believe she went, she did analysis of Lacan for six years, something like that. Her analysis took six years. Uh, might be wrong about that, but um, and and it, it basically is a two-person stage play with cool film noir lighting, but. Yeah, what I like about it is, I think what an analysis is, is incredibly mysterious. Most people, when they think about psychoanalysis, like we're, you're saying, they think, oh, you want to sleep with your mom and kill your dad, or your parents are the reason you have problems in your life, or right. things like that. Now, of course, the funny thing is, this this woman's, her big issue was her, her father's desire. So, okay. But... It's just cool to see a depiction of an analysis. And yeah, the, so I, the, the guy who played, I mean, he, he kind of played Lacan, I guess. Um, but it's more of just the guy is just being a psychoanalyst. Um, he did not try to mimic Lacan or act like Lacan or anything like that. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't have a French accent, nothing like that. But it's cool to see these these concepts that I've studied for years get put into a film. And so, what was it? What was I going to say here? Um, so, I wrote a little something. Um, The only thing, I don't know, this isn't really even a critique. It's just, I wonder how this film works for somebody who knows no Lacanian theory. Right. I don't know. Like, I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, there's desire of the other. Or that's the moment she traverses the fantasy and blah, 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 blah. Right. But I don't know. I wonder if somebody who doesn't know any of the theory, if they'd watch it and go, oh, wow, like, I really get what happen in the analysis or they'd be left going okay so why what why did she get better um right <laughs> you know and I, so i suspect they would be weirded out they, i suspect they would be weirded out and just said in the chat i watched the first part of the lacan film and was thrown off by the fact that the brazilian woman and french psychoanalyst did not have accents and spoke perfect english I, right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Fair enough. But uh, Anne didn't get to the parts where, like, like, like they make a real big point of like after the session's over, like, and Lacan always like calls off the session abruptly, and she's always kind of startled by the fact that it's over, and then he's like, he puts his hand out for the money, and then she's got to put the money in his hand, and it's like this, it's awkward. It's and they they keep doing it. And so I think that those are two things that are very characteristic of the of Lacanian psychoanalysis is like uh, it's like you put the money in my hand and then also I'm going to abruptly cut off this stream constantly um, or, or stream. <laughs> but I'm going to cut, you know, cut, cut off the the the, uh, the, the session um, in a way that's actually I don't know if I told you this. They, they also call it scansion. Scansion. That's where they. Yeah, the, where they cut it off quickly, or the where they do an abrupt quilting point or whatever, um, and that's what we kept seeing. 
Yep. Well, I think that. So, so here's and, what I, I said. Um, so, obviously, the film's a film, but it 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 led me to have the desire to see like a series of films that depict analysis that or depict concrete analyses. But like, I, it's like I want the the inner monologue when it shifts to Lacan. It's like you're getting the theory from his inner monologue. And then you're seeing how how it's relating to the practice, right? Right. Um, so the inner monologue, I would have liked, like, you know, if Lacan, uh, uh, for Lacan to be thinking through his concepts or using his concepts to think through the analysis discourse. Um, right. Right, because you get access to his inner dialogue where he's like thinking, he's thinking to himself, like, oh, you know, she's, she, she she could have gone and gotten something treated, but she didn't. And that led to a miscarriage, but she chose not to, but she just seems to skip over that and not like want to even think about it. And he's like clearly not wanting to draw it out or point it out because he wants her to come to that realization on her own. And you, I think that you would get that if you didn't know the Lacanian, if you didn't know Lacanian theory, but at the same time, like that he's, he never, well, it's bereft of any of his concepts. The entire movie is. Right. And you, you have to imagine, after analysis, he's thinking about what is a master signifier, what is um, objet or anything, you know. Symptom, I mean, yeah. He, he built these concepts in order to understand the analyst or the, the analysis discourse. I mean, there's the, the funny moment where he's playing with the Baromian knot, you know, with the strings. Right. Did you get that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. So that was funny. But, uh, but you just think nobody, but a trained analyst can pick up on what's really going on in the sessions, which I was taking notes. Like I, there's moments where I can go, okay, there's signifier, there's resistance, there's demand, there's desire as desire of the other. Uh, dream interpretation, sexuation, sexuality, the unconscious, the fetish object, which was the pendant, the protector pendant, uh, fantasy, which was being like her father, traversing the fantasy, which was the the the, mo the whole thing about incest with her father, repetition. Uh, there's a parapraxis where she says fantasy instead of phantom. There's scansion, which is the abrupt end of the session. There's the ethics of psychoanalysis. What does she do at the end? She resolutely chooses her desire for, for Antonio. She is freed from her father's desire, which was her fundamental fantasy. She's traversed the fantasy. And she ends up resolutely choosing her desire for herself, which that would be part of the cure. Um, I Honestly, I'd have to go back and watch it. I don't think... I don't see like nothing which Weezons or Death Drive really caught my attention. Maybe I missed it or something, but um, I just I was spotting all these Lacanian concepts, and the film is a much richer experience where when you have those concepts at your disposal. But yeah, I mean you know, and, and you find out like her stubborn resistance against doing analysis in her native tongue was rooted in her father's demand or desire. Um, and so, so was her resistance to the, 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 the pregnancies in the first place because this, you know, she, 
she wasn't having she wasn't having these children for herself she wasn't having these children for her husband even she was having these or or she, the struggle was over the fact that her father had been super possessive or something like that right well it, so, i didn't fully understand it but yeah it was something like um her father insisted he demanded that she never tell anybody the whole truth except him something like that i'd have to go back and get the exact wording but that is that's what unconsciously led her to resist doing analysis in her own language because if she's doing analysis in a foreign language she can't tell the whole truth right yeah and, and that's just... where you, that's where her realization is like holy shit my whole i felt like this was like a spontaneous desire or demand either one I'm using them kind of loosely here um on my part like it, it was mine but really it was my father's and i had no awareness that when i was making taking this stubborn stand on this it was really my my father's desire that was causing me to do that right yeah, and so that was a big epiphany moment, and you know, I I think it's worth watching if you are, like, if you let's just say that you you read one of Bruce Fink's introductions to Lacanian psychoanalysis or or that Lionel Bailey uh, introduction, just like you're, you're you're like something pretty 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 intro level, and then or or maybe you've just listened to like our streams on Lacan or you've listened to a lot of Why Theory. Uh, and and watch some McGowan videos, you know. At I would say at that point, it's worth a watch because it's going to help. It's going to help bring together some of these things. I mean, the, you know, uh, Salamunda Costa, uh, Michael, the one in uh, Katowice, Poland. Um, yeah, yeah. So he, he was telling me uh, that he would go to Krakow once a week for this group that gets together and talks Lacanian theory one day and then they get together the next day and they go over their cases because most of them are practicing analysts and they would go, they go over their cases together and they, as a group, like interpret one another's cases. And, uh, so he would go and he would sit in on these things. And so he actually, he's, he's right now working on a, a paper that just got accepted into a journal in Polish. Um, and it's about Lacan and media theory. And so that's really exciting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So congratulations on that. If you listen to this later, yeah. that's awesome. But uh, so yeah, he's and he said that you know, and, and there's not a lot on Lacan in Polish. Uh, not. Has at, he, yeah, you have him? Has he seen the film? No, no, no. But but he was talking about how how well, we were t we're talking about how uh, sociologists and also screenwriters um, when they're when they're thinking about humans. So whether they're writing characters for stories or they're interpreting the subjects of their, you know, their, their studies, their research in social, in the social sciences. Um, one big flaw and, and, a, and a, a repeated error is assuming these sort of atomic individuals that are, that have like this, this self, this, this coherent self-identity that maybe you can become somewhat estranged from, or you cannot fully understand, but then you can get to f fully know it and become s fully self-actualized and self-possessed. And like, there's this assumption that 
you know, the person that you're that, that that is responding to a survey or the the character that you're writing in your for 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 a part of a movie is is like this yeah, like this this uh this substantive ego subject as opposed to a split subject, right? And so cuz I was talking we were talking about how social sciences without like a basic lacanian um understanding really suffer and and he said something about feeling like he's he, he's talking about being barred uh being a barred subject but then he was talking about how he feels like he's a uh, he's doubly barred uh because he's uh speaking in english when he's you know his native tongue is polish and mm-hmm. and so that's when i brought up the brazilian uh lady what what's her name it's like sa sa something anyway i should have we should have I put it in the notes but i didn't yeah we should have it handy but anyway yeah in fact she she was like insulted to be called the brazilian lady i think in the actual movie and so I she, I, it's the little the little woman the little girl something like that i don't know Little or little song. Oh, she was called the little Brazil. Yeah, right. Lacan calls, says, "All right, I'm ready for the little Brazilian." Like, what did I call her that? Like he, he's sitting there going, "I don't know why I did that." So Lacan called her that, and then she gets insulted because she overhears him, and then, and then he's like, "You hear his inner dialogue," and he's like, "Why did I call her that?" <laughs> yeah. uh, that which is a nice little moment of like showing his own lack, right? Like he's not. He's not in full. He's not a. He's not a master. He's not in full control, right? Of his speech. So right. So her uh, name. That was a good little detail. Her name is Seremia. All right. So I just looked it up. Seremia. So Seremia, you know, and she was also, you know, having the struggle being barred in language and all that. And so I went ahead and told him about the the movie, and he was like, "That's crazy because going to these meetings in Krakow." one of the analysts was having this exact same issue where someone was coming and th- th- getting analysis from her, but in a, di- you know, this was not her mother tongue. And so, uh, th- th- you know, that, that, uh, analyst hand was suffering or, or frustrated with, with the sessions, but at the same time was the one who had chosen to do it in this language. And she had come to the same conclusion that Lacan does in the, in, in, in the movie we're talking about, Adulacan, which was that it was an unconscious form of resistance to the analysis itself. It's a way of, and actually, I think when when she has this realization, uh, when Seremia has this realization in in Adulacan, she says that she was doing it because she didn't want she she was playing it safe. She didn't want to say too much, right? Because which in is a, that's obeying her father's demand, right? So yeah, and, and but of course she she, had, at, it's only at the end of analysis she, that she was able to connect these dots. Like she didn't see that her desire was her father's desire until later on. And so yeah, I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of cool things. Like I say, you start to, and this is why I wish there were more Lacanian case studies available. I mean, I know they have to exist, but I don't know. The, the only book I have, God, what's the guy's name? It's been a long time. Um, it's like a book on Lacanian psychotherapy. And this guy is, it's the one book where I found good case studies from a Lacanian perspective. But um, I definitely wish I had more of them at my disposal to be able to look at. But um, yeah, overall, again, it, it's just cool to see. <clears throat> Uh, a film that is so focused on 
Lacanian psychoanalysis, and um, it just it would be cool if there was a. I almost wish there was a running commentary by a Lacanian analyst. I was telling you this, where they would they would explain the concepts or the significance of her saying something in the analysis, and like where you marry practice and theory into the 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 film. Right. So when. Hey, if anybody who's working on this project or who worked on this project and might work on something similar in the future or anyone else who might work on something else in the future, just, uh, you know, hey, something that would be really cool is a commentary track by a couple of analysts who are breaking down the theory as it goes through the film because I would watch that. I would definitely watch it. Oh, me too. Um, but, I, you know, there's a, there's actually like a... Now, is it... There's a couple of... PDFs I've got uh, f uh, for Freud, and one of them is like all of his cases. Yeah, he, Freud, he his case studies were. I mean, you got the Rat Man, you have Dora, you have the Wolf Man, um, Doctor Schreiber, Little Hans, yep. all these classics Lil now. Hans, yep. So Freud's case studies are iconic, right? But. I, like, and maybe there are some. I just don't think. I don't think Lacan ever wrote these like detailed. I'm sure throughout the seminars he's mentioning shit he's dealing with with his actual patients, but I don't think there's these focused, detailed analyses of individual cases. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say on. Hold on, before I just one thing. Talking about the whole difference between a substantial subject. And a split subject. That's why the movies that I love so much from the 80s that are the, they're so bad, they're good movies. Um, part of the humor in them comes from the fact that these characters are written and portrayed as substantial essences. That they don't have contradictory aspects of them. So, so an, me and the guys will sit around and we're watching, you know, a trauma film or whatever. And <laughs> you have these typical... 80s goons these 80s bad guys and what's <laughs> funny about them is they're not they're not human they're just they are pure utter goons and that's why it's so fun to see them get killed in horrible ways because they're not humans they're like cartoon characters right and it, it's so funny that like with, with bad movies a lot of the times people will go i don't know why i find this shit so funny but it's hilarious to me it's funny because you're seeing human beings act like cartoons, which is to say pure, substantial essences essences that do not have any conflict within themselves. Bad, uh, most bad people have some good aspects. Most good people have bad aspects. And part of what they, who they are as a singular subject is precisely these specific contradictions that they deal with. That's what it is to be human. It, I mean, that's one way to put it. But right. these old shitty movies with bad acting and bad dialogue and bad scripts, you're watching, they're, they're like, almost like human marionettes or, or uh, Anna Tron, uh, uh, God, I'm drawing a fucking blank. Anna, not, hold on. Animatron, I don't know the word that you're trying to find. is what I'm, yeah. And it's funny to see humans 
animatronics. Dude, I am um, I am getting fucking raided by spam bots more than I've ever in my what life. Is this just it's just like porn. It's like porn shit. It's ridiculous. And it's like fucking. There's no delete them permanently. It's either put user in timeout or hide user on this channel. I'm hiding. Let's definitely hide them. I'm gonna make a couple more mods in chat. Uh, so master signified bodies. I'm gonna make you a moderator so you can also delete. Um, Anne is a moderator. Uh, Bode Lacanian is a moderator. So, all right, but all right, all right. So, all right, we've we've been through a Dulacon. I think we're we're happy that it exists. We think it's a you know it, it's definitely worth watching. I think something that uh, you said on on the previous take when the audio wasn't working right. Uh, was just that it's it's what did you call it like it's like a play with noir lighting yeah it's a two-person play with film noir lighting yeah so i mean the, the whole the whole film is just the two characters with lacan and the analysis undergoing you know doing the analysis right so i like it i i'm i'm a big fan of a movie or a film that is just a conversation, and if you can make, if you could pull it off, then 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 awesome. And I think they did. I think they pulled it off. Have so, you seen Dinner with Andre? No. Okay, that's one. You, you gotta. You and Ann need to watch Dinner with Andre. It's a two-person movie, and it's two guys sitting in a restaurant having a philosophical conversation with each other, and that's all it is, and it's great. Nice. Yeah. Have you seen Man from Earth? from earth that yeah that's a that's a classic where it's basically just a, a group of old friends who get together at some cabin and like the one person's basically just telling telling his story and everyone's asking him questions and stuff and and it's a trip it's a it's a it's really well written the fact that they're yeah, able yeah, to make I, it interesting now i'm looking at it i haven't seen this yeah it comes up in lots of these like uh uh, like I don't know, film snob lists. You know, you so you should be familiar yeah. with it because you're one of those. Yeah, you know me, like I'm a total film snob, but I also enjoy the trashiest, shittiest movies of all time. So totally, and everything in between. Like I, you know, it's I just love all kinds of movies. Yeah, well, I don't think you'd like Jungle Cruise. That's not one of the ones that's on our fucking list here, but I just watched it. It's this new, it's got The Rock in it, and the fact is, is like, look. Oh, yeah, okay. Like, The Rock is, like, he's pretty much typecasted. He's pretty much got everything. Well, The Rock plays The Rock. He's got basically everything hanging on, like, three facial expressions that he can do and 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 puns. But, like, the thing is, is when he's with Jack Black, say, in Jumanji 2, or when he's with... Uh, uh, whoever William Scott in the rundown or whatever, like th there's a good dynamic there. The two of them are like th they're able to carry it in the comedic sense a lot further than him by himself. And the I, I just saw this Jungle Cruise movie, and I just have to say it's it's terrible. So I don't think you'd like it. You might well, like no, it, everything in between. Thing. So but... of course I, I mean, look, I grew up a pro wrestling fan. I was obsessed with it as a kid and even as a teenager. And so the the era of Stone Cold and The Rock, yeah, like I, I Rock's one of my favorite of all time. But 
Rock, I mean, I think it's, you can argue he's the most famous movie star in the world now. And yet he's never, he's never chosen films that are really iconic films. Um, you go down his filmography and there's not too many you want to rewatch. Now, the Fast and Furious films are fun, but I mean, ridiculous fun, right? But when John Cena got into acting, I think a lot of people were like, well, God, how's he going to even begin to compete with The Rock? The funniest thing about it is I think Cena's already done something that's really an icon of pop culture, which is the Peacemaker character. And, and so it's just funny that Cena's just getting started and has already done a pop culture character that I think is going to be more remember, remembered more fondly and as an icon of pop culture than anything The Rock is actually... Like, now, The Rock himself is, is really the icon, but his roles, I can't think of any role or what maybe he'll he'll knock it out of the park with this black uh adam movie but i'll have to wait and see so all right now that we've you know we've rallied the troops to this point we've kind of killed some time we've we've talked about adula khan and i think we've worked out whatever technical difficulties we had we're not going to have video though folks sorry about that but you know our faces should be fine so i mean our voices should be fine the, what I want to do before we, we get into anything else is just a quick kind of rundown on a couple of the things that we're going to talk about. And then I want to just like take a minute here before we really do anything else, though, just to say thank you to everybody who did donate. Yeah, because yeah, so we've, we've done two things this year so far. One is hashtag free Mikey, which is really just promoting your Patreon saying that all the money that comes through that Patreon up to the first few hundred dollars is going to go to some grant writers to hopefully get you some more money. Um, you know, so it'll hopefully snowball out like that if we can get some grant writers. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, and, and so far that's going pretty good, good itself, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, anybody who wants to, you know, I don't care, a dollar a month. I mean, my God, like anybody who would give me a, anything a month to do theory i mean it means the world to me because as as an aspiring theorist most people don't give a fuck about what i do you know so uh right. it, it means the world to me if somebody wants to <clears throat> help me out and further what i'm further my work and like i say you know i'm i i'm doing the best i can working full time and I know what I can do if I can not work or not work as much. Every every moment I have to work on theory will be spent on theory. And so, yeah, that's the, the long-term goal is for me to somehow – Yeah, and people say it's impossible. You can't – there's no way in the world you can ever just do theory and <laughs> have a functional life, you know. And it's like I want to do the impossible. Like that's what the the act is, right? Where it's it's doing the thing that is impossible and making it possible. And if one person can do it and make it possible, then you open up that possibility in the symbolic order for it to be repeated. It just takes one. I mean, so 
one of the one of the guys who I watch who do, does film reviews is Chris Stuckman. He's one of the most popular film critics on YouTube. And I think I've told this, this mentioned him before, but he just did a Kickstarter and raised money to make his first film. And he ended up raising over a million dollars. Like I, he was going for, I think 200, 300,000. And he, and so he did the impossible. He, he got, he's going to get to make the movie he wants to make the way he wants to make it. No Hollywood control. And so he like, he hacked the whole film system and he's getting to make his movie. And so it's incredibly inspiring to young up and coming filmmakers because they're like, you know what? This this thing that was con- said to be an absolute impossibility, Stuckman just showed there are possibilities we can actualize. There, there's ways we can do things. And in my own small way, that's what I'm hoping to eventually be able to do with um, with theory. I, I, I'll, I'll claim it. I'll, I'll own it. I want to get to have get to live a life where what I do is theory. And there's a lot of, you know, I relate, like, it shouldn't be this fucking hard for people to be intellectuals or do intellectual work. And it's to the point that even if you have a position in academia, the the conditions of your work, the conditions of your situation are still so shitty. You either work so much that you have no time to, for your own research. You don't get to do real sabbaticals anymore. Or what like. You have to be like from the old school generation to have any of the, and it's just, I, I don't know. I, I'm just somebody who thinks that creative work, I don't care if it's architecture or philosophy or film or science. Um, I think these are the best things that human beings can do is this, 100%. these kind of creative endeavors. And all I know is that all I want to do all day long is theory I want to write theory. I want to learn theory. I want to teach theory. That's it. And I want to do that for, for the rest of my life and then die straight up. And so anybody who, who would actually want to help me achieve that, I mean, I'm, I can't even begin to express how thankful I am for any help. And, and then, help, you know, the, the laptop thing, it's just amazing. Right. So and that's the other thing that, right. I just thank you a million times. Right, and so that's the other thing, everybody, is uh, we were able to raise $771 for Mikey's laptop. We got him a badass laptop. I've been setting it up. My my buddy Chris is the one who built this laptop. He Then he sent it to me so that I could install all the software on it so that Mikey doesn't have to fuck with all of that. It's just going to come, ready to go. Um, but, yeah, so... Thank you to especially Marvin, Ryan, Liam, Richard, Marilyn, Lukash, Sumal, Sumel, David, and Anne. So you all, to all of you. you made it possible. Just and then everybody who's everybody who signed up on that Patreon, huge thank you. I think it's a like eighty six dollars a month or something like that right now. And yeah. that's that's a. Uh, you know, I've I've been saying in the description of my videos. Um, I, I don't know if anybody's noticed. I don't know if anybody looks at the descriptions of videos, but 
uh, a lot of my old ones are still outdated and I need to update them, but it's a huge pain in the butt to go through all of those. But most of my recent ones say all of my content is demonetized. I don't have any, I, everything's self-funded, but if you, uh, if you want to help give back at all, just go to patreon.com forward slash the dangerous maybe and uh, subscribe to, to support Mikey because at the end of the day, th you know, a part of the realization for me in the last few, I'd say six months with my own stuff on this channel and everything else that I'm doing is that, I mean, yeah, I wrote a book, but I don't have to write the book immediately. I don't have to do anything right now except for get my get my life together and to, you know, and, and figure out like what it is that I'm like, that are the most important, uh, problems and, and questions that I'm working through and, and to try to develop a sort of form of life that allows me to also do theory, but also have some kind of financial independence. And I don't know what that looks like just yet. I'm still working through it, but you know, realizing I'm not in this rush and that I'm not trying to be an influencer and that I'm not trying to, succeed by traditional metrics has also freed me up to be like, I am just a theory plebe. at the end of the day. Like I might've studied this stuff a long time to get to where I am. Uh, other people are able to, they could obsess dive in deep and be ahead of me in a shorter amount of time. But in part, probably because of, if not just me, people like me who've put in the work to making this stuff more accessible. And so, using my platform to educate myself and bringing on people like Mikey and Chris Catrone and Chris and Christine Louis de Soli and Bruce Beerman and others is, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's good for me, but I know it's also good for other people and we're all just getting started. And, and so, but I, more than anybody else right now, I mean, all, all those other people have their own, their own, sources of income, financial independence or, or, or institutions that they're, they're a part of or whatever. Mikey doesn't though. So I, I, out of all the people who can help the most, um, the person who needs the help the most, um, is Mikey. And the person who I think personally, I will benefit from the most, uh, if, if he actually is to be freed from wage labor, uh, without a doubt, it's Michael, because, um, if anybody's not read through all of his blog posts six times yet, like you need to, because the, 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 the streams that we've done so far are really just the tip of the, the, the iceberg. So, and I, and I, I genuinely, I, I think I'm at this point now though, where it's like, I can say for sure that what we're doing is unique. No one else is doing it. Like there, there are other people doing important work, but what we're doing is singular in its own way. And, and I, and I've, I've, I think I feel confident enough at this point to to say that so um well no i mean and thank you i mean seriously like nobody has over the years has supported me more with theory and, and than you i mean hands down and so you know you're the one who put the you, i mean dave knew me before i had a blog dave was bugging me all the time you got to do something you got to do a blog do something you know and so dave like liked my Facebook posts before I ever had a blog. So um, whether it's the blog or we're doing these conversations, um, I Dave knows this. I, I 
with 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 the facticity of my life and where I am, I I can very easily just go, oh fuck it, whatever, right? And Dave has always been somebody there to go, no, you got to do this, you got to get, you know, do a, do another post, and that motivation has helped me do a lot of what you see on the blog and the the conversations and all that. So, you know, and also it's just the fact that I really do believe. Dave has something special with the concept of time energy. I really do. And I, I just want to see Dave get the opportunity to build this concept out because I know it's, it's not reducible to surplus value or, you know, necessarily. it's, like, it's a no. whole other thing. And like, I, I cannot not think without it. So I just, I want to see Dave get to write that book. You cannot not think without it. It was very confusing, but I think I follow. Like, uh, yeah, it's because like, it's because I can't forget that idea. You know how many books I've read over the years, especially before I like my life, <laughs> my 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 slighted poverty and everything. I mean, when I when I was able to have all my time energy to do theory, I was reading damn near a book a day. Jeez. And there's so much of that shit that I read, none of it stuck you know and in one ear out the other and it wasn't because i didn't care it was just a, a lot of things don't stick with me that i've read and but the concept of time energy is one that once once it clicks i don't for me there's no going back well you know and i actually i uh i sent a copy of my book to bruce spearman who if, if, if folks if you haven't seen the interview with him i definitely recommend it uh, it mm -hmm. just went up pretty recently. It's in the play. If you just go to the front, the, the front end of my channel, you'll see my playlists and it's one of the main ones on the, the, the great interviews that I've done with a bunch of people, but it's, uh, it's, it's probably got the best thumbnail out of them all so far. And, and it's just called this conversation. I think it, what could change your life. Change, what, change your life. Something like that. Yeah. And anyway, so, but, but you know, he, as a professor who, as probably like the professor who inspired me the most, um, I, I, I was pretty nervous sending him my book. He wanted it. He asked me for it, you know? And so I was like, uh, okay. You know, and then I think I waited like a month and a half and then I finally sent it to him and I just got a text from him today where he's saying that he read, I mean, I would say he's read like the theoretically most establishing part of the book, which is the first third. And he's like, He's stoked about it, and he—I don't know—he said a bunch of really nice things, and so I feel, I feel grateful and humble and appreciative today because that's that's a big deal for me. Um, totally makes me really want to just work on on writing. But the thing is, is I can't just sit down and then write. Like here, I, I'm not I'm not employed right now, but I can't write. Like, and it's not writer's block, but it's like I need to be able to spread my stuff out. I need to have a space to work in and it cannot be like my bedroom and the coffee shops have been non-functional for me. And so it's been a complete nightmare getting, and then the other thing is I just can't focus on anything, but like, where am I going to be living? Where am I going to be working here in the next year? I've got to make major plans, got to make major decisions. So there's all this stuff. And that's been kind of the ongoing crisis for the last couple of years. I, so I'm actually surprised that I even got a book out in the first place because I've been, I mean, this it's been a it's been a struggle ever since I graduated. I've had nothing but housing issues, and so, 
Um, and, and, you know, it's partially my own fault because I, you know, I don't want to work like a full time job. And so I've been pretty resistant to going back into the labor force that way because I've, I've been there and I've done that for over 10 years. And there's this part of me that's like, no, I've got to be able to figure out a way to eke out a living where I can work part time and then but but get in a groove where I'd still be able to write and read and everything like that. But the last year, the the three jobs I had that like three jobs in a row ripped me off, two of whom like I actually took to court over it. Um, and, and both of which really screwed me over. I mean, all three really screwed me over. They're just terrible jobs. And so it's like a lot of the jobs that people talk about, like, oh, there's so many jobs right now. Uh, you know, companies are just dying for workers. It's bullshit. The f you know, almost every job on Indeed is a scam or it has to do with sales or like, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, so it's just been a, it's been a, it's been a nightmare. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in the current, I'm currently in the process of, of trying to figure that out. So I've been, instead of writing, like, which is what I want to be doing, I'm, uh, I'm working on my resume and I'm working on a portfolio and I'm trying to find different ways of, of selling myself. Cause it's like, well, it, at least I could, you know, travel a bit and get out of the country, you know, Ann and I both want to do some traveling and there's a lot of people we want to meet and go places and stuff like that. And so it's like, if we had one of these kind of like di digital nomad jobs, maybe that would be the solution. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, I don't know. My whole thing right now is just to free you from wage labor, then free myself. Um, that's the, that's the current plan. But for the time being, it's just, it's focusing on you because at least we can still have these conversations and mm -hmm. these conversations are something I can still listen in on if I'm working manual labor later on. So it's like, it's not like I just do them once and then I never go back to them. It's like, I'm doing them so that I can come back to them later in the same way that I'm doing them for people who are at work or multitasking while gaming or whatever, so that they can also come back to them later. And so that's why the content is also switched from you know, there was a lot of other kinds of content that I was doing, but now it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of the three hour, you know, on average three hour conversation because I just feel like a lot more is able to come out in that. And that's part of what I was talking about. Like our, the, the, the singular, the singularity of what we were doing. There's just mm -hmm. that you, you could definitely find conversation. There's some really fucking good podcasts actually for theory, but the, I, I, I don't know. I think what we've got here is something good. So I like it. And I appreciate everybody who's been supporting it so far. Especially, especially Bode Lacanian. You've been a fucking total champ. I don't know if he's still in the chat right now or not. But yeah, he's been a total champ. He's helped out a lot in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Well, yeah, totally. Just, just thanks. Thank, especially to him. Thank you so much. Yeah. So now. What do we what, where, 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 we got so much to talk about? What, where are we going next? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of stuff on the thumbnail. Kind of, I'm gonna full screen the thumbnail so the people who are looking at the screen are able to see it. And I'm just gonna do a quick rundown on what's on the thumbnail for people who aren't able to see this because this will be a podcast eventually. People will be listening to it. Um, so the podcast has the Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, Adula Khan, Ozark, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Russian Doll. Um, and then it's got an article that, from Current Affairs that says, what is Zizek for? And then it's got a thumbnail from a video th uh, from Sublation Media with Douglas Lane that says, is Lacan an enemy of the workers? And then there's a couple of comments that I clipped and put there of someone just being like, 
Agamben, the COVID denier. And have you seen this new compact mag that Zizek edited? It? And then, like, and then I've got Zizek, and, and of course everything's over a vaporwave background. And over the sun, it just says, "Oh my God, OMG, so problematic!" Right? Which is kind of I don't. That's not so much the 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 movie Hollywood side of things. We'll be getting into you know our reviews of these movies and shows and stuff, kind of just for fun. Um, and we'll be, you know, to some degree using some concepts that we've been developing or, uh, you know, trying to understand through the course of the, our conversation so far, maybe, you know, when we're talking about these films and shows. But, but no, the, the OMG so problematic part has to do with this current affairs article. It has to do with like, oh my God, is Lacan an enemy of the workers? And this approach, this approach to theory where it's like someone, I, I don't, I get the impression that a person like that commenter, uh, who, you know, who's actually a creator and makes stuff and I've seen the stuff that he makes or whatever. And it's like, you get the idea that this person has never really spent time with any thinkers to actually learn concepts, but instead is like, okay, so this name of this person, what is it reducible to in terms of a position or a policy that might be problematic so that I can just write them off and so that I don't have to read them. Right. And so that is part of what we want to combat. And so on the on the far right of the 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 image here, we've got, you know, Zizek looking at the all of it with his scowl. And then we've got a Gombin looking at the camera and then we've got Nick Land kind of staring off and he's got his little dumb smirk. And so and somehow I don't think we've ever mentioned Land somehow. Uh, we've. I don't. I don't know. If, I don't know if we've ever. I. I feel like maybe once. I don't know. But we like the fact we haven't actually talked about Nick Lane. I don't think. I. I. And the problem with problem with him is I actually have read so little of him, but I actually suspect that part of how I think about things has actually been influenced by the guy. And it's like it's weird because I haven't actually read him. Um, but I know he's definitely been a, an influence for you. And so people are going to be like, oh, my God, first Heidegger and now Nick Land, neo-reactionary. Oh, my God. And so, like, that's what we want to talk about is like, okay, so there's different. Okay, the, the What is Zizek For article starts off by saying that he's a misogynist, that he's, that he's a racist, that he's, like, saying that the left doesn't need him, right? Mm -hmm. um, the... Every you know, generally speaking, like everybody's like, what the fuck is wrong with Nick Land? What what what's the deal there? If you're if you're on the the hauntology, right? Yeah. If, if you're in the yeah. hauntology meme group, it's like Land comes up once a month, and then there's always like three people who are like, oh, why are we? Why is he still coming up? Could we be done with him now? And then other people are like, he's part of CCRU. You can't just do away with him. And so then, but then Agamben has been just totally. Uh, persona non grata like for the last two years um, because he came out against like the COVID discourse t taking shape the way that it was going um, and was uh, generally skeptical of the mainstream narrative but not not just like in like a sort of like oh you know oh you know don't don't believe the fake media kind of Trump bullshit or whatever but in here's why I think it's actually something that people need to take seriously and not just brush off or write off like oh he's a he's a crackpot or whatever the fact is is he is one of the most influential and brilliant minds of our day 
that he's written a lot of amazing works that people are struggling with to this day. Um, he's got a whole set of concepts that are fundamental to doing uh, political philosophy and philosophy of statecraft. That he that nobody's taken the problems put forth by someone like. Carl Schmitt and Foucault or Arendt more seriously than Agamben has, and no one's, uh, t no one's read all of those people as diligently and remained a sort of like a serious uh, commitment to their fundamental questions and concerns while doing his own goddamn thing the whole fucking time, right? So it's like, and, and the you know, so he's the thinker of Homo Soccer, uh, which is to say, like the, the you know the the legal concept of a person who can be unpersoned right and this was a concept from roman law his specialty was roman law as a philosopher um the his, his he, he's he's the thinker of the state of exception um uh he's the thinker he's the thinker of biopolitics and form of life and um you know he he talks about how foucault never talked about totalitarianism whereas like Arendt did but uh, Arendt never thought about biopolitics like the, the, the ways that Foucault was. And so there's a lot of the, these missed opportunities that he's bringing together. And like I know Mikey doesn't like hasn't like spent a lot of time with Agamben because you you're, for you, it's just like he, he's not developing a theory of subjectivity. And so that's just why you haven't really spent any time. Well, with him. It's just here's the thing. Like it's nothing like it's, I don't have. There's a lot of philosophers I haven't really studied. And it's just because. Look, for me, I always knew I had something to say. And so I was less interested in studying the history of philosophy for the sake of the history of philosophy. I was always looking for thinkers who could help me cultivate my own thoughts. And that's that's what the group of thinkers do for me that I'm tuned into now. But, yeah, it's not a... It's, yeah, it's not like I have some issue or anything like with a comic. Right, and so the main thing I'm getting to is just to say that he, as if you're doing critique of uh, political philosophy or if you're doing uh, philosophy of statecraft or if you're, you know, if you're trying to think through like the inherent mechanisms and problems like of the state um, or if you're thinking about how capitalism is, it's like it's taken on all these theological aspects um, in modernity. Uh, he's he's you have to go through him, and so the, the you know so people people are all upset that he's that he doesn't like the the lockdown discourse or you know in, during the COVID moment, and uh, well yeah no fucking duh he doesn't you know he's the thinker of the state of exception. Like the, the state of exception is like when whenever the state says we're going to throw out like the the law or, or you know, the principles that we use to legitimate ourselves. We're going to throw all that out because we've got some kind of an emergency. And so we need to just act on this emergency. Um, and, and then they always expand powers that never get taken back. Right. Like they, they the, the state always uses that as an opportunity to control, to expand control. And so. Like, obviously, if, if he's the thinker of that, then he's going to have a problem with this thing, with this moment. And so people uh, acted surprised, acted shocked. I would have been shocked if he hadn't taken an issue with it. And so, right. but instead, people, they don't even want to have to engage with it. They don't want to have to read a shit about it. They just, oh, nope, write him off. He's done. And so, and that's, that's kind of getting at 
th this whole thing is like people want an excuse to not have to work through a thinker. And it's like, look, on the one hand, the time energy is the only excuse you need. If you don't have the time energy to do it and you also just don't have like the burning curiosity or interest to do it, fuck it. Don't do it. But the it's when people start coming in the comments and start being like, oh, well, how dare you? Or, or why are you doing this? Or, oh my God, you're reading this person. Where it's like, yeah, I'm committed to trying to understand the major players in the field of thought that deal with politics, with the social, with subjectivity, with ideology, the state, etc. And so, um, but... Yeah, so I mean that's that's mainly my two pieces. That, that's my I don't I don't think I've ever really talked about a Gombin before, but I as far as Nick Land goes, like what is why do you use him? You're going to be using him in this article you're working on right now, right? Right. Okay. So part of this the whole reason we're talking about Nick Land just for a second is I uh I posted one of his quotes from Fang Numina. Now, if you, you ask somebody about Nick Land, there's there's the two Nick lands. There's the earlier Nick land who is, they say some kind of leftist uh, who's doing the work with the CCRU. And throughout the nineties, Nick land wrote a series of essays that they are incredible essays. I mean, even if you don't like what he, like, like his, if you don't like his ideas or whatever, his writing style is itself it's crazy. Worthy, yeah, it's worth it's worth checking out because um, nobody in the history of philosophy has written like this guy. Um, now, of course, some of the things that you're, you know, yes, he he overdosed from amphetamines, and that's part of his online lore. Um, but around 2000, he, and then I think after the overdose, I think he disappeared for a while. Then he came back. Um, around 2007, 2008, and during this period, he becomes, he, he takes a turn to the right, and he ends up writing The Dark Enlightenment and these other essays that give rise to the neo-reactionary stuff. And so he's often considered like one of the intellectual forefathers of the alt-right. Yeah. And... And he's, he definitely has said racist shit on Twitter and all this. So he liked Moldbug uh, and was promoting Moldbug during like. Moldbug. Yeah. So I get it. There's there's all these reasons not to like him. But the, the, the stuff he was doing in Feng Numina resonates with me just because I'm interested in not only what capital is, but or capitalism, but what it could what it can potentially become. And what we have with land is a sci-fi vision of what capital is. Maybe the closest to him before was Baudrillard, but I think land takes it a little bit further down the sci-fi sci path than even Baudrillard did. But mm -hmm. here's the quote. So I posted this, um, and then our friend Swolitariat uh, was like, huh, what, what does this mean? So the quote is, uh, and this is from an essay from Feng Numina called Machinic Desire. Land says only proto-capitalism has ever been critiqued. So 
you think for a second, wait a second, how is it that only proto-capitalism has ever been critiqued? How is that possible? Like, are, are we saying Marx only critiqued proto-capitalism and all of the economic textbooks in the world, they're only talking about this, the proto-version of capital? Well, if what we've seen throughout the industrial period and, and, and consumer society and all, if that's all proto-capitalism, what the hell is capitalism? Well, this is where things get a, a bit strange. So Bland, he was he started off, he was primarily influenced by Bataille, but then with these essays that really have kind of solidified his legacy as a thinker, um, the ones right in the middle of Fang Numina, essays like Machinic Desire, Circuitries, Meat, and especially Meltdown. What Land ends up doing um, in this period, which is he, he was influenced by Bataille, then he gets really into Deleuze and Guattari. He uses these thinkers to start thinking about what capitalism is and what it's becoming. What he envisions is that capitalism is the most, it's the most productive form of society we've ever had. And all of the various technological developments with science that we've seen, it's this, it's this marriage between capitalism, technology, science, and so many technological advancements have, have come into being because of the economic incentive tied to them. Long story short, what Land posits is capitalism is building its way to giving rise to the singularity, which is to say artificial intelligence. And when it does, this artificial intelligence, given the fact that it's emerging out of this logic of capital, um, this technological singularity, it's going to emerge as basically like a global security system that, that's there to monitor everything for the sake of security. But of course, and this sounds like the plot of Terminator and Land himself's aware of that. Um, <laughs> this this artificial security system is going to basically realize like, hey, the biggest threat to humanity is uh, um, humanity itself, and that this this techno capital singularity, as he calls it, is basically going to wipe us out, and. The idea is that this the singularity, and you hear a lot of people talk about the singularity. The weird idea is that the singularity will be capital itself. That this this thing that's been this logic of capital that's started with commodity production and all of this has been building itself into the singularity. And so the singularity will be capital itself. Capital itself will free itself from parasitically leeching off of human beings. It won't need us. It won't need labor power. And it itself will, for lack of a better term, become its own independent being. And capital will have become its own intelligence freed from human beings. And it'll wipe us out and or use us up like in the Matrix. So he, it, land, it, you know. I was going to say, it doesn't make any It doesn't. To me, it doesn't make any sense to say capital without labor power, but it does make sense to say capital without capitalists. And so this is like a way, like the Matrix, 
is capital without capitalists. You've just capital became it, it gained it gained artificial intel you know artificial intelligence kept capital doing what capital does best, which is exploiting labor power, and it just maximized the way that it exploits that labor power in the matrix at least. Yeah, but here's the thing: I'm not saying that the once the singularity emerges, it will still like. Oh, okay, I'm here now. Please buy the commodities. I want to say it won't. It's not about that. It's about the fact that once this this security system or this artificial intelligence emerges, it itself will just be its own being. And there's no like what makes us think this this god that we've created will care about our like that's where it takes this pessimistic turn is that there's there's no reason i mean think of us with our intelligence how great have we been to the earth and to other species or to our own even like why why would this this form of intelligence be omnibenevolent why would it be all good in our eyes it won't care about us at all probably and yet we're building it we ourselves are given rise we almost say like this is our death drive at its maximum right is the is, is the way that you have all of these you know tech billionaires who are f putting money towards artificial intelligence and 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 well it's, it's about the, the internet of things I mean, no, they're yeah. not yeah the algorithms we wouldn't call them artificial intelligence yet but and and look you know i get dreyfus's you know critique of what computers can't do and all that, and I know that you know Land was. I think he was into nanotech, and that seems to be at a standstill. But even if there's a lot of the 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 science and the technology that was popular in the '90s imagination have somewhat died out, there's still this threat of where is this technological system rooted in capitalistic motives taking us? Well, this is why if if land was right the little the capitalism we think of as the the production distribution and consumption of commodities and the accumulation of of, of wealth that's that is proto-capitalism if 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 the realization of capitalism is a godlike singularity right if that's what capitalism is actually doing and so yeah that's so for swole there you go <laughs> You probably were like, God, I should have just shut up and not asked the question. Well, that's what I, you know, you said I was liking your Facebook posts back before you're doing blog posts. And the fact is, is I, 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 I remember you, you'd always share quotes or you'd just say something using some jargon and you weren't the only person I'd added from philosophy and theory groups who would do this, but you were the only person who, when I'd actually ask you questions, um, we'd end up having like a really great conversation about it. So, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, instead of taking questions to be like a threat or like a problem, I understand obviously when you don't have time energy, like you don't have quite, you don't have time to answer every question or whatever, but like you're never like insulted by someone asking a question or you don't just be like, Oh, pff, you don't inherently understand what I'm talking about. Like you, you'll actually, you, you're going to try to, you'll, you'll try to break it down. So I've always appreciated that. Yeah. Sometimes I don't have, you know, I'm don't, I'm tired at the end of the day, especially now. And you know, and then I forget, but yeah, I mean, here's my thing. And you here, I've said this for so long and you're the one who, who really figured it out. 
you know me better than anybody. In, in, in you know, as far as theory friends go, there's you and then everybody else for me. And why? Because you and I started talking on the phone. Like right. you know how much I believe in talking on the phone, and that's I, I've dealt with that where I am not going to write these long, lengthy responses. I just don't. I, I hate. I hate text. I've never liked communicating that way. But if you get me on the phone, I'll talk to you for three hours, right? Like, yeah, so like I like to be able to like is what media form we're using. Yeah, and you wrote that excellent blog post that's uh, that's on McLuhan. That one's still one of my favorites. I I, I want to do something more with that. There's so many ways I can expand on that one. Yeah, it's the, um, it's I, the, I really like that one. Yeah, it's basically just an it's a defense of voice communication, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. You, using McLuhan and Levinas, and I 100% think it's it's. And more, I have this whole other thing I can do with Lacan now that I didn't I, I didn't know at the time, but. Yeah, so I, there's definitely a longer version of that that I, I want to work out at some point, but well, like, had, I, I wouldn't take anything back that I said. I would just add to it. Well, if we had our time energy, we'd do a whole we'd do a whole anthology on critical media theory, right? Absolutely, because yeah. that sh- that shit is just that is that is critical media theory at its best. Is I will that, say that anybody article? like look, there are so many thinkers to read, and that's part of the hurdle, right? Especially. Like Dave talking about time energy, how do you how do you begin to choose which ones you should read if there's so many worth reading? Fair fair question. I will say this: read Marshall McLuhan's Understanding Media. It 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 unlocks something in your brain when it comes to thinking about our media situation. That I mean, it's just a game changer of a book. It opened up basically a whole field of study. And I just, I, it was one of the coolest books I ever read. It was like, I remember reading it for the first time and just going, God, I, I should have read this years ago. Yeah. So I guess I wanted to pivot from talking about, you know, oh, you know, so we've got like three supposedly problematic Obviously, calling Zizek problematic is fucking ridiculous. Um, That was a hit piece. That person had no interest in, like, Zizek, but was, quote, mining some dirty jokes, basically. And the fucking, he's the philosopher of dirty jokes. Fucking deal with it. And, oh, they don't like that he's a pessimist. Oh, fucking deal with it. You can be a pessimist and still be a leftist, so shut the fuck up. Yeah. I try. (laughs) You try? You you're saying you try to be a, try to be a leftist, or what? What are you saying? I try to be. Uh, well, I am a pessimist, but I try to be some kind of leftist while being a pessimist. Like right. I'm just saying, I don't think almost right. Like, don't you? Don't you? I mean, if you have any sort of leftist spirit, doesn't it come from some sort of pessimistic view? Like things really suck; they need to be changed. Right, and and I think that. You know, like a part of it's also just like, you know, it's it's really easy to go, oh, everything everywhere sucks. I, I want everything everywhere to be changed. And it's another thing to be like, all right, well, most of that's not going to change, you know, and we're going to have to choose our battles wisely. And we 
can't just say things because it feels good. Like how Chris Catrone just said in that interview that, well, he was, I think, who I forget who he was. He might have been citing Kolakowski, but uh, yeah, a, ble- a bleeding, bleeding heart is not a political position, right? Or it's not a, it's yeah. not, it's not a politics, right? And, and, and in the same way that like, you know, hope and change on posters shouldn't really, shouldn't really, that, that, that should not be convincing. Well, how about he makes this great point towards the end? Like, look, you know me, I am, I am very pessimistic. At some point I'll probably write a book on pessimism. I, I have doomer tendencies, all this kind of stuff. I'm still able to understand you're not going to win over the working class by telling them, you know, doing some anti-natalist shit like, oh, by the way, you shouldn't have kids or you shouldn't love like, like doing this kind of radical theory. Like most people don't think like this, like the whole point of being a philosopher or a theorist, you're going to think shit normies don't think. And just because you read some books and come to think some really counterintuitive thoughts and maybe even hold to them. To think people just are supposed to spontaneously go, oh, yeah, duh, yeah, absolutely. No, they're going to think you're a fucking lunatic and write you off. Yeah, yeah. That's like the, the, I think we've had this conversation. You've said Zizek said it. I don't know. But like just, yeah, if you're, if your mode or the, you know, the movement mode is anti-family, or comes off that way, or comes off yeah, as just gonna like lose. you're gonna lose, right? Like it, it can't be like we're the fucking movement of teenagers versus the parents. It's like that's a terrible idea. That's a fucking awful idea. It's f- no hell no. <laughs> it's a terrible idea for a million reasons, uh, but also just because that's you know the idea that it's just going to be a handful of radical teachers and you know, a bunch of students that try to represent and advocate for marginalized people has been the plan since the sixties. Like this has been the plan since like the SDS, like drafted up it's, it's like manifesto and its approach to, you know, how things were going to be different than the old left. And it's just like, that's, that's, I, I don't, if, if people are happy with where we are and they're happy with how everything's gone in the last, like, well, since the sixties, then okay, fuck it, go for it. But um, I'm just not, I'm not convinced, not at all. And so, and, and the thing is, I'm not saying that I'm not. Say, here's the other thing. I think obviously, like, there's like this sort of populist position that would just say, well, then we just need to center the the middle class like parent and just center them and build everything around them. No, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying you don't fucking don't make your entire thing like uh, something that insults their very existence. Right, like don't yeah. don't make all, enemies all out of regular people if you can fucking help it, you know. Exactly, especially these regular people who are economically struggling, etc. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on a second. For some reason, I'm hearing myself again. Wait, I don't think I'm. It's gone. I did. Never mind. I did nothing. Nothing changed okay. on my end. So, all right. Well, I mean, look. My thing with Land, it's not like I'm a fan of his. Uh, I'm interested in capital itself. And I think whether we, you know, somebody go, okay, this is just fucking far-fetched sci-fi bullshit. Or you see this weird tendency in capital 
based on just the the development of the mode of production um all of this like tech capital is always seeking technological advancements in order to make production more efficient well you you could definitely think that automating it with a certain form of intelligence could really do that and you could argue that automation is going to have to involve some sort of step in that direction. Um, and this is not automation for the people. It's automation for the sake of more efficient capital accumulation. Um, you start going down this, this trajectory and it's like, people can go, well, Lance just doing a slippery slope, but I, I don't know. I, I, this, this appeal, uh, the appeal is in what this, process of techno techno capital could go to for me and that's that's basically where my only interest in land is at i mean look as far as ontology goes or whatever you know doing he's he's battalion early on and then really becomes a the luzo guitarian and you know this as a lacanian i have my disagreements there so um yeah, it just, I don't know, it's its the, uh, it, it, what do you have to say about capital that interests me? And um, and then, again, Agamben, obviously, with what he does with biopolitics and everything, like you're saying, if you're, a, you're, if you're a political philosopher, I don't see how you don't have to go through Agamben in some way, shape, or form. And Zizek, I mean, you, you already know, like, what can I, obviously, I'm going to defend Zizek. Like, we're, we're, um, get, we're getting ready to do yeah. part four, and when we do part four, it'll be like over 12 hours of of uh, unpacking his theory of ideology. But people are like, no, <laughs> that theory of ideology, we could just throw it out because he's on P Compact Magazine or because he has a dumb take on NATO or, like, what, I, oh my God. Yeah, didn't, didn't we have somebody tell us, like, like we're doing something wrong talking about Zizek because he supported NATO or something? Yeah, I mean, unless you're like pro-Russia, for some people, that means you support NATO, but obviously there's, I, I, I suspect there's a more nuanced point that he would take, but I also wouldn't put it past him to have a stupid fucking take on foreign policy. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, like, I don't imagine that he like, like, I, he could be reading The Economist and The Guardian and watching Democracy Now! and a couple of, like, other, like, normie TV shows, and then he, like, he, he, like, reads some newspapers, and then he just forms his opinions, and he's more interested in developing concepts or using concepts based on the cultural text that he's looking at. I don't think he's trying to go a whole lot deeper when it comes to the, 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 the situa- the global situation. I, I, I've never gotten the impression that that's his wheelhouse. But it's it's uh it's where he always gets in trouble. He he always gets in trouble with somebody. Trouble with his take on refugees and all of that, and and again, it's just these topical issues. That's not why I'm interested in Zizek. If Zizek was just his takes on geopolitics, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't even be yeah. I wouldn't even be paying pay attention in the first I place. Wouldn't even be tuned in. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, for I'm not. I'm not there for his his political takes or whatever i'm there for his robust theory of ideology and his hegelian ontology 
So the thing that we didn't talk about that we're going to talk about is the master signifier and how it's important to the conversation about what it is to do philosophy to us. And the reason we're going to even talk about what it is to do philosophy, besides the fact that some people have asked, how do you do philosophy? And we've been asked this directly, is also just, and we, we, we said that we might respond to that in our thank you stream. And this is our thank you stream, and so we'll do it. But, you know... There's there's a wonderful quote that you have. It's a Zizek quote. It's about his take on what philosophy is. I think it really helps get at something that it it actually it's like the positive side of of this uh, this that brings to light like this other thing that just pisses us off when it comes to philosophy. So I think that what we should do is just get into that talk about. Do you have that quote ready to hand? I'm looking at it right now. So the quote goes like this. This maintaining of a distance with regard to the master signifier characterizes the basic attitude of philosophy. Philosophy begins the moment we do not simply accept what exists as given. It's like this. Law is law, etc. But raise the question of how what we encounter as actual is also possible. What characterizes philosophy is this step back from actuality into possibility. Theory involves the power to abstract from our starting point in order to reconstruct it subsequent, sub, 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 subsequently on the basis of its presuppositions, its transcendental conditions of possibility. Theory as such, by definition, requires the suspension of the master signifier. It says that in the forward, or the preface or whatever to tarrying with the negative. And so philosophy involves a critique and challenge of master signifiers. Now for you and me, we're going to talk about the, this type of master signifier as our fundamental presuppositions, those assumptions that generate our basic field of meaning within a society. And so these fundamental presuppositions are master signifiers. And the question is, what is the necessity and the contingency of master signifiers right which of course it, then there's another dimension of this which Zizek doesn't talk about we also have to own up to the the idea of the philosopher's jouissance in destroying worlds which i think this is why philosophers have always been a threat right is it seems as if like you get a philosopher involved they're gonna take <laughs> something from you it's not just a specific like it's like they're gonna take your world from you right and and the thing is like and, and they're gonna enjoy doing it right like that's the secret like stain of the philosopher like that it's almost as if like it's some like i am the destroyer of worlds type of thing and that's why i mean so many people especially and maybe it's not like this everywhere in the world but in america god you, you say anything about being a philosopher or saying you do philosophy and people just have a fundamental distrust of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if they're evangelicals, they they think of the "God's Not Dead" series where the professor take their God from them, right? The professor is an atheist who's going to try to like fail you in class if you don't denounce God, which is absurd, obviously. But we're not going to fucking do some you can shit. Go down like the that. line, right? If somebody is a big science scientismist, uh, you know, a real diehard defender of science, new atheist type, right? Yeah. 
you're a philosopher, they think you're going to take their their god from them. Something right, because they're they're so used to dealing with these with these with these evangelical fundamentalist types, and they've not really done much philosophy of science. They just like to follow, you know, cosmos and Dawkins or what have you. And so then, and and they they basically buy into the idea that anything that is worth saying or believing has to have like Occam's razor applied to it and has to, you know, have, you know, it has to have, you know, empirical evidence. And, you know, they, they have this whole line of things, which obviously is, is relevant when it comes to certain things, but they obviously, what makes it scientism is that it gets generalized to everything. And, and, and so they exclude like from the outset, a lot of things that obviously they don't even know what they're excluding because they, well, they're not doing philosophy. They're not doing the liberal arts. They don't, they're, they're not steeped in the, the, the life, the mind or the history of ideas. They're just, you know, it's, well, it's just science. It's just science. And it's like, well, science is a process, but what you're talking about is something else. It's not a process that you're talking about. And so the, uh, yeah. And then the, the floor falls out from under you when you're in a conversation with somebody and you're, you, you're saying a bunch of shit and you think what you're saying sounds really good. And, you know, you, you, you figure, well, only these idiots who I hate, who I've already debunked thoroughly before, or, you know, if people I follow have debunked, like would disagree with me. Uh, and then all the, you know, and, and of course everyone, you know, what I'm saying is not just, it doesn't just sound good, but also like people are going to, to love me for saying it. And then you, but then you say it around a philosopher and the philosopher like, looks at you and is like, what? <laughs> like it's, yeah. and then you realize your groundless grounds. You realize like the floors falling out from under you. You realize how f you, you, you don't really have anything to work with except for some like platitudes and, uh, some, well, and some scripts that are only really operational within a certain framework. That's no longer in, you know, in the room. So, and, but this gets at the point, right? So somebody who gets into philosophy, especially when you're young, there is, I, I want to call it the philosopher's jouissance, which is, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to show people their fundamental presuppositions. I'm going to break their shit apart. Right. But, and there, there's something rebellious and, you know, youthful about this, but I think part of maturing as a thinker, you start to realize like, okay, yes, our, our basic like and so this term groundless ground i love this term and it really goes back to heidegger but um lee braver wrote a book called groundless grounds where he's thinking through the connections between heidegger and especially the later wittgenstein right and so the idea is okay you have a ground you have a foundation but that foundation itself is without a foundation it's a foundationless foundation or a groundless ground and that's what these key presuppositions of a given social order are. They are what give it its character, give it its uh, support, anchor it, and yet there's nothing anchoring those. And Which is to say they're not absolutely necessary. They're not absolutely the way it is. They're arbitrary and they're contingent. And so because they're arbitrary and contingent, Part of philosophy's job is to say, this is not the way it is. This is not just how things are. Things can be different, right? Precisely because the grounds are groundless. But as you mature, you also start to go, yeah, but they are 
even though they're groundless, they still are grounds, and they're the only grounds we have. And so there's a necessity to the master signifier or the groundless ground, even despite the fact that it's contingent, arbitrary, and can be changed. And that's part of it is where you start to go, okay, it's not just about tearing down a world. It's about seeing those points that structure a world, but also that do harm, make things bad in a certain way, et cetera. And then you challenge those. And so it's, 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 there's a creative aspect to philosophy too. I don't think it's just this, but he, I mean, he's right. I, I totally agree with this, that it's the philosopher's job to challenge the master signifier. But you can say it's also the political revolutionary, the political agent, um, that it's their job to establish a new master signifier, right? A new way uh, of organizing society that is ultimately groundless. It could be otherwise. It doesn't have to be that way. But you're trying to organize society in a way that is best for the most number of people um, and... There is no absolute guide how to do this. It's groundless. Right. It's contingent. We could say it's experimental. Um, but there has to be these anchoring points for us to have any stability, to have any enduring familiarity with what's going on at all. So there's a necessity and a contingency to the master signifier or the fundamental presupposition. <clears throat> Yeah, and, you know, and he talks about how you're taking it, it, it's a step away from what's actual and and a look at what's possible. And I think, obviously, like, people think about, it's already kind of a trope, you know, on the left that what we need is more radical imagination. That's what we lack. We just, we lack radical imagination. And just because it's a trope doesn't mean it's, inher it's, it's there's nothing to it. I just think that, I mean, it's it's rare that you hear a person say that where it's like, okay, so what's your radical imagination doing for you then? What have you what have you brought to the table, right? And th this a, a, a sort of a, a trap or a pitfall, obviously with philosophy, but also with imagination, um, it can become utterly removed from the world. It can become like a purely speculative thing, and it can become a sort of subjective journey of self-discovery um you know like an in an inward turn away from the political that ultimately justifies itself by saying well the political is not really doing anything anyway so i'm gonna i'm gonna do something great you know but it's all it's it's it's, it's inside of me which is almost just a sort of like it'll be like a slightly more sophisticated or at least more, perhaps more radical sounding um kind of self-help right and it's funny this is what Kierkegaard would i think it, there's different distinctions he makes but it's one He'd call it something like the uh, despair of infinitude or the despair of possibility where you're so wrapped up in possibility that you lose connections to actuality. Yeah. And for him, you know, he's, he's saying to be a spirit, to be a true self in the most authentic, robust sense is about this synthesis of the, the, the actual and the possible, the uh, freedom and necessity 
the infinite and the finite, temporal and eternal. And he would say people, the, the, I mean, he even describes it where how people can totally lose themselves in fantasy and imagination and lose all connection to talk like a Marxist material conditions. And this is a form of despair for him. It's a way mm-hmm. to go wrong as a human. Mm-hmm. So, but the thing that I want to use to counter that concern also is that there's nothing wrong with disengaging from time to time. We have to disengage from, from material conditions in a sort of sense, mentally, every night when we go to sleep, right? We have to, you know, obviously your body's like in a material sense, like getting revived, but the we also have to disengage from whatever it is that we're in the middle of to be able to step back and make sure that whatever it is that we're in the middle of is actually going in the right direction or is worth being involved with at all because you can be in the middle of something and not see what it is that you're in the middle of until you've had that opportunity to step back. And obviously there's like this, well, you're always in the middle of something and so you can't, you know, there's no like, there's no God's eye perspective that you're able to step back out into. So, you know, in the, in a Heideggerian sense, you're always already thrown into the world. Right. And, and the, you, you don't get to get outside of language to analyze language, for instance, because says there's no meta discourse or meta language. Yeah. I don't know what that means. It just means that there's no, like all we've got is our symbolic orders. We don't have access to some other symbolic orders that could give us some like, like you're saying, some sort of God's eye insight into our symbolic orders. Like okay. all we've yeah. got is are the fields of meaning we have. Right. Uh, being in the world. But what I'm getting from what Zizek's saying about, or Slavoj, what he's saying about the Master Signifier, about suspending it, about challenging it, about critiquing it. For me, how I would apply that is just to say that the way I see the world is... There, we live in the midst of what, what, the world that we're always already thrown into. What is it? What, there's a few things that we can say for absolutely certain about that world. One of those things is that there are uh, forces and interests around us uh, that want us to, to subscribe to whatever it is that they're doing or whatever it is that they say that they're doing. All right? And so ideology is a way that that occurs right that we we become embedded in systems and uh and in uh in these fields of forces and and and, and relations between uh competing interests that have a, they they all have a vested a, a vested um interest in us uh uh believing in whatever it is that they're selling and, and, you know, obviously, like, marketing is all about uh, trying to give us a social reference field that we will operate within. You know, it, it's not like Pepsi cares about every single person buying Pepsi. That, that's not their goal. They want you, insofar as you're American or think about Americans, to think Pepsi and Coke. As long as you think Pepsi and Coke, they've succeeded, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the goal of the marketing isn't just to brainwash people to make everybody love Pepsi, but it's to 
make it so that fundamental uh, uh, reference in the field for you include them as a major player and that you that your identity insofar as it exists has to have a stand that is either Pepsi or Coke or you're that weirdo who goes for the off brand or whatever maybe you just you just drink water or kombucha right so Remember that time I caught you drinking that RC cola <laughs> did, did you really no oh I, I mean I would I would do I would you know so I, I drink off brand but I'm, I'm a weirdo though okay. All right, so hold on. So here, you said a lot. Let me do a, this is kind of a, more of a simple twist. So in our situation, challenging the master signifiers, I think at this point still, are challenging those basic principles of neoliberalism that keep us locked into capitalist realism. Which, what are these austerity or, or, or even talking, oh, the only game in town, right? All of these different signifiers that basically say capitalism is just the way things are and everything else are delusional fantasies. That is what he's getting at, where you stand back and you go, no, this, to this day, there's, this is not the only way society can be organized. And yet all that we've, all that capitalist realism has done for 40 years or whatever um, has bombarded us with these master signifiers, you know, finding every way it can to confirm in our minds and hearts that these fundamental presuppositions about capitalism being the only way we can organize society, those, those are what you stand back from and, and see them as these contingent impositions on us that are not they're not the the laws of nature. Right. Right. And, uh, and uh, at this point also, you know, obviously, so for us far beyond just neoliberalism is capital itself. What is capital? There's on the, uh, there's obviously like uh, the sort of explicit ideological level of like what people say about capitalism versus socialism and the, the sort of things that people say about capital as opposed to like, but what is capital? Right. And, and what are, the what are people cannot answer that question? Yeah. I'm still struggling. You know what I mean? Like it's a, obviously there's a bunch of like sort of locked and loaded kinds of answers that I could just spit out about, Oh, it's, it's dead labor. Right. It's dead labor. It's objectified labor. It's uh, it's money that fucks. You know, it's uh, you There's know, a certain logic. It's MCM Prime. You know, it's okay. But you know, and and then, but the, for me at this point, it's also, you know, insofar as I think that capital is one of the fundamental problems, because obviously it's what we're in the middle of of his entire world that's been reduced to market relations, where capital's fucking like reduced all time energy to labor power. That's just on auction block, you know, to the world. Like, and, and like, that's my fundamental concern. There's also just like, okay, but then as far as alternatives go, there's also alternatives that would be first, you know, potentially worse. Right. Like, uh, like, uh, like, uh, if you, if you get a bunch of people who are anti-capitalist, but what they want is a return to like, uh, you know, God and Pope, and king and and uh and, and and they're going to kill 
whoever stands in the way of that and 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 return us to a dark age maybe there'll still be some... neo feudalism yeah neo feudalism and, and the thing is is like neo feudalism could also have rainbows and neo feudalism could have you know grand social justice sounding legitimation narratives for everything that it's doing but it's still functionally you know there it could it could have abolished uh, property relations it could have abolished uh, wage labor for the most part and instead of property and wage labor instead you know people they've got nothing uh, but like uh, the the uh, you know it's basically slavery or, or serfdom mm -hmm. you know and that that, that so there's there are and, and obviously when when the World Economic Forum um, is saying it's anti-capitalist when obviously like this is like the world's capitalists um, and, and and you know they're they're talking you know they're ta they're talking you know you got people like uh, Charles Schwab talking about how you know oh in in the near future like thanks to COVID you know with the Great Reset whole idea like you're will we'll, you'll have nothing and you'll be happy like they're they're playing off of like anti capitalist sounding rhetoric but what you what what it really means is it'd be sure a lot easier to manage capital and grow and make the numbers go up if we didn't have to worry about you all wanting to own houses and wanting to have cars, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what they're really saying. And so they, they, they can do that with the old co-opted language of prior radical movements that tried to resist capital, right? So when I'm thinking about, you know, challenging fundamental presuppositions and master signifiers, I'm also thinking about the way that the left is a master signifier to people. I'm thinking about the way that capital can become its own master signifier. I'm thinking about the way that the words that are associated with those two things that I just said also become master signifiers because it's never really just or one. Points. Yeah, it's never yeah. it's never just one signifier, right? You've said this before, but it's obviously like if you say the left, well, then that's interchangeable with depending on like your position. That's that's interchangeable with freedom, equality. Uh, egalitarianism, communism, socialism, anarchy, anarchy, whatever, whatever it is. There's a there's a variety of other master signifiers. They're all related, and some people can have kind of all of them operating. That those are all adding up to a master signifier. The question is, is what does that master signifier do to and for you, but also do and for the human population at large? And then how does it function in that population at large? And then there's like the, the questions that come up for me about how like, well, so I don't really know if I can control the discourse or control what a signifier means to other people. And so then there's just like, what, well, what does it mean for me? In what ways has this become sort of like a, a just a, a, a I, I, I'm blindly sort of staking a sort of faith in this, this word that's supposed to hold together, you say quilt, over a bunch of other words and meanings that holds all this stuff together in a sort of groundless ground way. And it's, and it operationalizes a whole set of presuppositional frameworks that are already co-opted into existing institutions. Um, what, so and the thing is, is you can come out the other side of, and I, I might come out the other side of this, you know, sort of, uh, this, this critical kind of thing I'm doing and, and be like, yeah, well, you know, so here's, you know, I'm still a leftist or something like that. I could, I could totally see coming out the other side being a leftist. I could see coming out the other side also just being like, you know what? We think that change is like happens in the political, but actually 
like insofar as anything ever comes out of the political and we think that we had anything to do with it, that's also undermined any possibilities of ever doing anything new, period. I can see coming out the other end thinking that too. I'm in a place right now where I could come out thinking all kinds of things. And so it's like everything's on the table and I'm working through everything. And so for me, it's like anybody who's posing a fundamental challenge to the system or anyone who's posing a fundamental challenge to existing groups, institutions, or ideologies. It's worth taking seriously, even if their conclusions or their policy proposals are fucking stupid. But I mean, obviously we also have limited time energy. We can't just like read every fucking op-ed that exists of someone who thinks that they're saying something new. And so that's why at the end of the day, I come back to, I might be challenging master signifiers, but I'm actually in a position now where I think I can quite comfortably defend the idea that I need masters and that it's okay to have masters. And the people in my experience recently who are just like, oh, well, this master said something. And I, I get it. People are going to cringe at the mere thought of a master, right? Like that doesn't mean that I'm a slave, but it means that someone has mastered a field or mastered of a set of questions or concepts that are fundamental to challenging or thinking through uh, what we are in the midst of. And if they have achieved mastery, then that means that I can learn from them. Now, does, does it mean that they're perfect? No, but it does mean that I'm going to, I think, benefit greatly from believing that I can learn from people who've put their given their whole lives to think through things and especially dead ones. I, I'm becoming a really big defender of dead masters because th there's, there's a whole digestive, a cultural digestive process that's important to Bildung, right? Bildung's that German word that has to do with like the cultivation of education. Uh, yeah, essentially, but it's also like culture itself or like, you know, if for, for, for Hegel, it was spirit, you know, uh, building and spirit go hand in hand for Hegel. Um, you got to get 800 pages into the phenomenology of spirit before you actually get to that part where he talks about it, but he's, yeah. he's talking about it. And so, but you know, that's, it's not spirit in like, you know, the woo woo sense or whatever. It's just like, you know, the, the general level that a civilization is able to get to, or that an individual within a civilization is able to get to is dependent on the shoulders of those who've come before those giants that you can get on top of. Right. And so, yeah, you know, and ultimately I'm going to disagree with everybody and I'm going to have some pretty fundamental critiques of everybody. Like for instance, I, I rely on, Marx and Heidegger a, a lot in Waypoint, my first book, right? And it's like, uh, in a in a big way, I I expect that I will be, you know, wrestling with them for the rest of my life, and I'll be agreeing and di disagreeing with aspects of their projects forever. But I I can already tell you, like, if I had my time energy in a couple of years, I'd write a fucking killer book about uh, time energy. But also, it would function not just as like an expansion on their projects, and not just as a, as a synthesis, but also as a fundamental critique to not just aspects of their own thought, but mostly how they've been inherited by Heideggerians and Marxists, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but, but it's just like, that's just me coming into my own as a thinker. And, the, and, and you know, like, it's, it's sort of that, you know, the father of the primal horde, you know, his sons are going to rip him to pieces eventually. You know, this, Freud, Freud was keen on the fact that this was going to happen to him. And the fact is, is every thinker sees it coming. Um, if they've, if they've done some fundamental tr contribution and then they go to these conferences and then they're like, oh fuck all these guys. 
<laughs> you know, after I'm dead, they're all going to be fighting over my <laughs> remains. And then they're all going to say they're the real one. And then I'm going to get enshrined and it's going to be this fucking pseudo religious bullshit. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. But insofar as a worker is able to gain freedom and win back time energy from a market that's reduced it all to labor power and put us on auction blocks insofar as we're able to gain any critical distance from these ideas, from the fundamental coordinates and presuppositions of these fields of relations, it forces and interests that we're always already in the midst of. Um, it, I think I'm pretty sure at this point, yeah, th that a big part of it's going to come from accepting the fact that, you know, we've got a lot to learn from people who, uh, who've come before us and that there's nothing fucking wrong with that. And in the fact that, and I, 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 to me, it feels kind of stupid to have to say it. It feels kind of stupid. I, 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 like I, you're, you have, you're saying it, but you're not saying it, which is to say what I, I'm going to say what, like if I'm reading your desire right now, correctly, yeah, go for here's it. what you're actually wanting to say. Listen up. You fucking PMC. You're not a great philosopher. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you know exactly what position to have currently and you know exactly what to say that is like the correct thing. And now you think that you can write off people who are in the life of the mind read 500 years from now who are going to be read 500 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, nope. Fuck them. So, and that's basically what you're saying is that there is this tension we see and social media has given rise to it between like these these thought managers and then philosophers and they are not the same thing right and so you see people who think you can just write off a Zizek or an Agamben now I get the land <laughs> land kind of did it to himself I get that but um, someone like Zizek or I mean nobody even has I don't. Very few people have even grasped how profound Zizek's work actually is. I mean, we're, everybody's just running to catch up with what he's done with Hegelian ontology, and there there will be someone in the future who, because look, Zizek is not, and I say this with nothing but love, but he's not a systematic thinker in the way of how like a Kant or a Hegel, like Zizek is very sporadic. We all know this. Like he, he makes these connections to, you know, and now he's very systematic in what he's like. His overarching theory is incredibly systematic. It's just that his presentation doesn't, doesn't lend itself to that. And the, I think there'll be a, somebody who really comes along one day and goes, look, here's the, here's the real, like, basically systematic Zizek. I mean, look... Uh, McGowan is kind of... Oh, yeah, McGowan's done a hell of a job doing that. But, I mean, I I, I don't think Todd's going to write that book, and I don't think... I mean, Adrian Johnson did a great job with Zizek's ontology, but I still think someone will come along that can connect all of these dots in one book um, as far as what Zizek's doing with Hegelian ontology that will really, it'll be a game changer where everybody goes, Oh God, Zizek was way more important than we realized. I think you could write it. Yeah, maybe. Foucault, that, I mean, Foucault in the a lot better at Hegel. 
Fukoding in the chat says ADHD daddy. Yeah, that's exactly what Zizek is. Is he's, he's our ADHD daddy. So I want to say just I, I wrote a couple short little paragraphs here, and I just want to read these, and then you and I can riff off of them. Well, I I wanted probably... to say something about the PMC thing too, um, which is just that I and it's I, I wasn't gonna use the term PMC in this conversation only because I re, I think it requires too much unpacking, um, but I think that I like the way that you said thought leaders. Or, you know, obviously this goes to influencers, but it also goes to priests and it also goes to people who take on sort of secular priest roles in our society. But ultimately they all serve like the legitimation narratives of meritocracy, even when they're hyper leftists and anti-capitalists. They can often still serve that function if they believe that influencer slash opinion curator is a role that's going to be necessary in the society that they're fighting for, right? If, if so, for because for me, it's you know, I obviously like people will gravitate towards other people, and people will want you know, people will still want to get on the shoulders of giants and great teachers and stuff like that. But the idea that there's just like this necessary role in society that needs to be defended, where if you're basically entitled to a whole set of privileges as long as you're real humble about it and very self-aware about it. And you're entitled to this set of privileges at the expense of everybody else having to do all the real work. But your job is to just tell all those doers how to think right. And if they don't think right, then it's their own damn fault that they don't get to have nice things. Right? And that's what it, Nazis. Right? Yeah. And so because that has become such an important position in our society, this, this sort of thought shepherd position has become so important. You know, 50% of a generation wants to be YouTubers, right? And, and a lot of those people want to be influencers. Um, and, and, and they think that, you know, as long as they have the right opinions and they're just going to be good role models, then, then that's all right. The, the, the class society is fixed. It's solved, everybody. We'll still have people who have to spend their whole lives scrubbing toilets and people who have to dig ditches. But, you know, it's going to be okay because those people will have, you know, really good role models who tell them what the correct takes are to have. Right. And so but because that's such a thing right now, um, it's it, it th that this becomes the, I think that the prevailing mode when it comes to the life of the mind and to thinkers is that of traffic cops who are trying to tell you, don't go down this road, go down that one. Even if you say, oh, I'm going to be reading some X, Y or Z. Someone's going to say, oh, why that? You should be reading this instead. Like somehow people are coming out of an education with the idea that that's a conversation, that that's the discourse is having an argument yeah. about who you should be. No, fuck you. People should dig into what they're interested in unapologetically. So that's because no, that's the biggest the biggest thing that our education system does, and obviously anybody who's in the PMC has has succeeded in the education system. The number one thing it teaches you is that. Your interests are not legitimate unless you can make your own interests coincide with the interests of authority figures that are arbitrarily telling you you need to care about X, Y, or Z things and focus on getting 
prepared for exams on X, Y, or Z things by certain deadlines so that later in the workforce, you'll be able to continue doing that for the rest of your fucking life. You're going to spend all of your time not focusing on your own interests. And this is why in part, I do think that ADHD is like a sort of unconscious defense mechanism and reaction against the education system doing this because it never used to. This is a uniquely new thing within the last hundred years. And it's directly, it's engineered to produce a hyper, hyper competitive and atomized class society. It's engineered and, for that purpose. And, the is, and who does that, uh, who gains from that? Oh yeah, capital. And obviously at the end of the day that it's capital. Uh, you know, in, insofar as you might like have a great job, you know, as some ascendant PMC person and, and you've, you've, you found a way to coincide your own interests with the interests of capital and you found a way to put your own spin on it and you feel self-actualized and you've got a cushy job. Like, obviously it's going to be competitive and probably a huge pain in the ass, but also there's, a, there's some recognition and esteem that comes with that position. And so, you know, class society might suck and you don't have tenure yet, but you've, or, or whatever, you know, you're in this nonprofit and you're not getting paid like a living wage, but you know, Hey, at least you've got like some, some social capital and some social recognition, right? Ask so them if they want to come pull orders with us in the warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. When, when it's a hundred degrees outside, no air conditioning. Right. So now these kinds of people who've never been able to really cultivate their own interests, except insofar as they could get their interests to coincide with authority figures and who've then taken on the role of social discourse cops. Um, they're not usually that bright and they're, they're not, their interests insofar as they might have their own interests are usually not that interesting, but some of them really are, you know, ingenious, at least when it comes to soci things, social things, insofar as they're socialites who, who know how to please the right people and say the right things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're good. Now, the thing is, is because the old aristocracy, like the kids of the old aristocrats, at least, you know, in order to be considered gentlemen or whatever, at least had to have like some education in the liberal arts. It's still, there's still like this idea that to be like a good PMC, whether you're a left or right PMC, it doesn't matter. You've at least got to, you know, have some basis in the, in the, in the life of the mind. Right. But obviously because that would require time energy and these people don't have any because they're in the same fucking rat race. Everyone else is in fact, more so than your average worker. Um, they don't have the time to do philosophy and they also fucking revile it because philosophy is inherently opposed to authority. It fundamentally questions what's going on behind the curtain. It, it sees the emperor doesn't have any clothes and there's nothing that's going to drive a fucking manager crazier than somebody who's like, but why, why do we do things this way? And obviously when you're trying to run a ship or a factory, like there's only so much that uh, a, an organization can take when it, when it comes to questioning. But the question is, is like, yeah, but what about outside of the workplace? What about outside the difference of between, Hey, don't ride a fucking forklift like that because that's fucking dangerous. <laughs> right. There's a different, and, and then the moralizing that there, I mean, it's a world of difference. Like one right, is like, like safety precautions. One is, think what I say. Right. And so, yeah, so you'd brought up the PMC thing. So I just wanted to expand on that because at the end of the day, when we're going to get into, I knew, I knew that's what you wanted to really say. We're going to get a, we're going to get a little bit more into, uh, talking about philosophers as opposed to doing philosophy 
and 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 I just want everything I just said to be playing in the background for everybody because that's exactly what I'm thinking about here is is that it's that that is the social context for people who are trying to be influencers who end up citing philosophers and talking about them, but they only talk about them as personas. They never talk about them as thinkers who have fundamental questions and concepts that they're working well, through they and developing. Where the concepts? Right. And so, like, we're going to end up talking about this Zero Books video, uh, which, I mean, we're not saying right, that... Hold on. I want to do one thing before we pivot in. Yeah, back. you've got a thing, so let's do it, yeah. All right, so I just want to, you know, this was another note I had. I wanted to just touch on the whole, your discussion with Chris Catrone, which I really liked, and I, I really like what Chris had to say on a number of things. One thing that jumped out at me, and this is just me being a Lacanian, um, so you, you, and, you and him were talking about rhetoric and the importance of rhetoric. And he, he, he acknowledged the importance of rhetoric, but then he, he makes a distinction between rhetoric and ideas. And Chris says, there is a difference between ideas and rhetoric, of course, and ideas have become debased into a kind of rhetoric, into a kind of in-speak, into a kind of language policing. Isn't that what Benedict Cryptofash is doing? Isn't he saying what matters is what we call ourselves? We shouldn't call ourselves the left. Well, uh, Chris goes on to say, it doesn't matter what we call ourselves. Um, it matters what the substance of it is. And I don't think any of us are dealing with the substance of the working class as a political force. Now, this is, you already know that the Lacanian thing is that, yeah, signifiers really do matter. Like, what, what signifiers we use have a way of shaping the field of meaning itself. And so it's not like it's a reversal. Like, and, and I get it. I think most people would think, well, it's really what you're intending to say that that matters. And the Lacanian who understands how discourse works in analysis, it's like, no, what you intend to say is not the real important. It's what you actually it's the actual signifiers that pop out. Now, of course, the, the example is Freudian slips, right? You, in, you intended to say something, and you really did intend to say something, but another signifier came out. And so what that indicates is something about your unconscious desire. And so there's that element of it, and then there's the whole master signifier thing. So the Lacanian rebuttal to Catrone is that it absolutely matters what we call ourselves. Now, uh, Tom McGowan and Ryan Ingley and their podcast, Why Theory?, have an episode called A Signifier for the Left that deals with this very issue. I don't know whether or not we should call ourselves leftists or the left, but I know that it matters whether whether or not we do. Say that last part again. I said, I don't know whether or not we should call ourselves leftists or the left, but I know that it matters whether or not we do. Yeah, yeah, I... See, and that was the thing was like, I think after the, after, uh, after you'd finished it later and you, you're like, you know, I, you know, as a Lacanian, I'm just like, you know, that you brought this up and I, and I was like, wait a minute. He said that what was I distracted by chat when he said that? Cause I, I, I wish that I had been like, wait, 
you just said like rhetoric really matters. Here you are, your whole thing is the left is dead, but also Democrats and progressives and anarchists and all the rest, they're not actually the left anyway. So, so like, but we want the left. Okay, but like considering the fact that they all think they're left and then everybody else, not even just the right wingers, but like normies think that they're left. It's like, what are you going to do? Like if you had full control of everybody's television and radio and, and YouTube and everything else, all forms of media for like five years and you were just like telling everyone, all right, everyone, public service announcement. What you believe is the left is actually not the left. And actually the left is actually this other thing. And that really what we mean is like uh, the working class organizing towards socialism without like this, you know, bourgeois left right divide that you've all become ingrained in. Um, people wouldn't, he still wouldn't be convinced that they'd rebel against that because they'd be like, well, this is just brainwashing. Obviously, like, you know, the two party system is its own form of brainwashing. But the, I'm just saying, like, you can't control that what people think about this signifier at this point. It's been a hundred fucking years. So I wish I'd been able to. Is- I wish I'd been able to say themselves that. are not neutral. They become libidinally invested. They become stained. Right. Um, I mean, think about like, okay. I mean, it's a, I hate using the example because it's so odd. Could we rehabilitate? Like we could say, look, all meaning is arbitrary. No, no signifier and no signified are essentially linked. There's a, they're linked by convention. So that means we can give a good, awesome new meaning to Nazi. Like, no. It's not. <laughs> no, yeah. you're not. It, 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 it's too stained. It, you cannot rehabilitate that term and give it some great emancipatory leftist signified. This, this, the, 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 this the is like, dead. This is like the people. I still meet them. I've I actually just met my first like unironic. Well, I don't know how ironic he might have not been. I, I I was at a fucking cafe, a diner. And I was getting breakfast. I was by myself. I was at the bar. And I met this guy. And we had a great conversation. I told Anne about this. By the way, Anne's been loving the stream, she said in the chat. But she's been she's baking some cookies for a bake sale. So, hey, Anne, I'm glad you're a part of this conversation. And uh, oh, I want some cookies. You know, Anne makes the best cookies. So, but this, so I met this guy. Like, you know, we had a conversation, whatever. And then, like, later, you know, and, and we, and he, you know we talked about our podcast or whatever. We, we ended up having, like, this, you know, whole conversation and we never got into like politics per se. Um, later, I check out his podcast, and he's like unironically talking about white supremacy, like being good, and the you know actually you know historically like the the South gets this bad rap, but you know it was actually states' rights, blah blah blah. And it's you know it was you know it wasn't really about slavery. Lincoln wasn't like that. You know it's all this other stuff. And I've met like maybe two other people in my life who are like this. And the thing is, is like it's like talking to a tanky. And I and I know tankies just fucking hate being compared because like ever since Hunter Rent, you know the idea of totalitarianism is to say you got left left wing and right wing like. Uh, forms of totalitarianism. You've got fascism, communism. These are the two forms of whatever, whatever. I look. I know people hate it, but like functionally for me, as a sort of culture war centrist most of the time, or as or as a defector from the whole thing, because I think both sides are fucking stupid right now. Um, I just I, I, there are obvious comparisons, and it, for me, it's like okay, let's just imagine I read all of this person's history books, 
And then I came out the other side of that like, wow, the history is so much more complicated and nuanced than I thought. And the mainstream narrative was actually bullshit all along. First of all, I have no problem saying the mainstream narrative about history that you get through our education system is bullshit. Obviously, it's fucking bullshit, right? People are not coming out of the education system skeptical about the FBI and the CIA. So obviously, it's fucking bullshit, okay? But... Uh, what you get is like people come out with this starry eyed view of like American history and then someone comes along at a point when they are feeling rebellious or like they defiant or, or looking for something new. And then they, they take like this historical bread, uh, bread crumb trail to like this. Well, actually, you know, actually you see like Stalin was actually, it wasn't really Stalin, it was Trotsky, and it was these other guys that he had to fucking kill, because those guys were like undermining, I imagine if I actually, I, I just have to do a thought experiment, I go down the whole rabbit trail, and I come out the other end, and, and then I actually am convinced of, of that person's position, okay, so you think that you can convince the rest of the world of this, you lost a war, buddy, get the fuck over it, that's what I come back to. Like, never mind communists and socialists as signifiers. Imagine trying to get America or Americans to vote for anything under the banner of the signifier Stalinist. Like, right. I just right. Th this I is just start seeing, and so the, this the is yeah. So so with the Confederate flag, with the Nazi flag, with the Soviet flag, it's just like you're you you think the solution to the you know the status quo being wrong and full of shit is to go find the defenders of the losing side of a past war and then assert actually they were victorious martyr fucking victims okay show me a point in history where this like actually everybody the you're all wrong about this history thing now we get to have the real revolution that we wanted show me show me a point when that fucking worked because I'm even it, it's just it's just so frustrating because I shouldn't have to do all this history. I already know it's bullshit, but I don't think the state propaganda of a losing side is somehow sacrosanct and there and, and, and like stands on like this like noble like side of history. Like oh they you know we might we might we bought into the lie. So actually the loser in history that loser had the truth right because so people say history is written by the victors yeah yeah that sucks so i definitely read uh, history with a grain of salt right but no then they say therefore it must be this or that loser i'm going to take the side of this or that loser they fucking lost get over it we got a new problem a new a whole new set of problems and insofar as now bringing it back to the left because i mean i'm more you know obviously invested in the left uh, here's the thing insofar as the the losing side was the left and the losing you know and the, and that there was some genuinely good stuff going on obviously you know millions of people died you know fighting for soviet russia for instance on both sides by the way of like say the bolshevik and menshevik you know uh fallout um uh, but also on both sides of that, they also killed a lot of Nazis. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a lot of like heroic people who gave everything they had to this cause or whatever. And so it's like, yeah, they should be respected. But to act like respecting them, therefore, also means we just resurrect and try to do it again. When it's like, actually, the fact that that, uh, you know, it's funny. I'm both. You know, I think uh, Frederick F. Bender says this in his The Betrayal of Marx book. Um, he says, it's actually kind of funny. The United States 
and the Soviet Union both wanted you to believe that Marxist-Leninism was real Marxism. Right? The CIA and the Bolsheviks agreed that the Bolsheviks are real Marxist-Leninism. That, or that Stalin is, is, is the real epitome of, of Marxism. They want you to believe that. Both sides wanted you to believe that. But wait, why, do, why are they so invested in you believing that this is the natural inheritor of that project? And why are they all so much more interested in you reading a handful of pamphlets written from whichever time period in this revolution than they are in actually getting back to reading Capital itself? Yeah, so I don't know. It's, well, bring it back to the signifier. Yeah. So, uh, I guess the way it comes, well, and actually, Hey, you know, so th th that's all a genuine question, I guess, uh, f from me to Chris Catron and anyone else who like the solitariat who is watching that and was like, yeah, yeah. If you're not on board with Lenin, then you don't, then what the fuck? You're not even a Marxist. Okay. Why? I just, I, I do not find it convincing at all that you have to fucking stake yourself like on some like historical political figure. I, 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 this is, you know, and for me, it's like we genuinely need to do something that's not been tried. And we're never going to figure out like what that is if we're just like, no, it's this thing that we tried before and failed because we were up against impossible odds. And by the way, those odds are now more impossible than they ever were before. We just have to try harder. The leadership will be better this time because I'm involved. Yeah, what the fuck ever. I, I, I do not find it convincing. So anyway, bringing it back to the signifier. Here's my thing. When I have these conversations, and I, I, I've had to learn how to have a lot of finesse when I'm talking to my coworkers about anything leftist, Marxist, anything, I find the best thing is to leave those signifiers out of it. You start talking to them about exploitation or you start talking about shitty wage labor and all they'll go for all that and you can work with them there if you start linen this stalling that hammer and sickle red and yellow if you go in that they they tune you the fuck out they don't want they don't care and i've had to learn like i can get them to go for certain policies certain structural transformation like that I can get them to go for. I cannot get most of them to embrace any of these signifiers. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're libidinally invested in the sense that I don't think people understand how deep that goes. But a person... They're libidinally invested in America, freedom, family, and, if you, and then you start to talk about these pol policies and how these policies would help these other they start to go for the policies right like they start going yeah this fucking wealth gap is obscene uh these fucking capitalists don't need like a 40th yacht like they, they'll, they'll go for all this shit but they won't go for certain signifiers and i've learned the this this rhetorical strategy of i can talk to them about the ideas and so it's a whole thing right like so he, like he was saying, there's this distinction between rhetoric and ideas. But the point is, and this is as a Lacanian, I don't think there's this realm of meaning and then signifiers, like meaning is generated through what signifiers you're employing in a situation. And so signifiers and ideas 
like we have to think them in terms of each other. And so when I say I'm trying to give them the ideas, I'm trying to say I'm using signifiers to get them to policies or ideals that they wouldn't go for if I use the standard signifiers attached to them. Right. Which is obviously like that's time energy started for me at a sort of juncture between some theoretical and practical problems that I was working through, but also just rhetorically trying to communicate what, what, what I fucking care about. I use time energy with them and they they totally, they go for it. They're like, God damn right. I wish I had more of my time and energy. And when I explain to them like, well, you don't really have your time without your energy and your energy. They, they go for that. Right. No problem. Right. Like you just talk about like, yeah, there's just, what would you do if you had just like a surplus, a reliable surplus of time and energy every week? Oh, because, you know, it's not no longer is it this, this video games and Netflix or the whatever, you know, poker. Like it's it's all of a sudden it's like like it's the fucking violin. It's it's like learning how to program. It's learning how to do this. It's learning how to, like there's a lot of things that we want to be able to do that we try to get into. But what do you have in capitalism? You have the end of the day or the weekend and it's time without energy. And then every once in a while you have a burst of energy, but the time that it's attached to is time without the potential for repetition. So no, you don't fucking have it. You don't have time energy. And you all, every time you get all excited and if you feel inspired for a week about all the things that you're going to do different and you're going to do this different, you're going to do that different. You forget your stomachs, you know, it's when you, when you take way too much food on the, on your plate and, and you're like, wow, my, my eyes were like bigger than my stomach. Yeah. That's what happens with time energy is like, you, you're like, wow, uh, I can do all these things. And then you realize, oh yeah, I'm finite. And the overwhelming majority of everything I have is on this fucking auction block called an economy. And it's just like, if yeah. people, if first of all, First, I mean, not only is it rhetorically smarter to approach it this way without being like, oh, fucking surplus value and surplus labor and labor power and means of production and proletariat. Necessary labor time. Right. Yeah. But the other thing is, is, is that time energy was not theorized. Like it was, you, you know, uh, I think Heidegger and Marx both get at aspects of it that are really important. But they also don't really theorize it. And so for, for Marx, it's just labor power all the way down. But no, labor power is what time energy becomes when it's commodified, when it's on that auction block. You can't transhistoricize that because it, he, you, know, you will at least from a Marxist get that there's a surplus product or a surplus, you know, there's surplus value in previous societies that gets, and I don't think Marx quite says this. I think you, you get this more like from Engels, but the point is, is that, you know, the, the, the question is, is like how do previous societies or how have they been able to organize that social product in a way that, you know, has more participation, involvement, like people, like for instance, like everybody's got a bunch more time and energy. Well, it's not like they all go do their own thing. Usually in any other kind of social configuration, a lot of that's going to be used up dancing and telling stories and, 
and, and, and, and making ornate things that will last and be handed down from generation to generation. And, and then like spending a lot more time connecting intergenerationally and all this, obviously capital comes along, tears apart the intergenerational idea, tears apart symbolic exchange, replaces that all with simulation and simulacra, you know? And so there's this whole question of like, can you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And, you know, I think as a baseline skeptic, I go, well, I don't even know if it needs to be put back. I don't know if anything needs to hinge on it being quote unquote put back together again. I don't believe that we'll ever like, you know, be like these, like we're not going to be hunter gatherers again, but with air conditioners, it's not going to happen. But when you realize that time energy is an existential, meaning an existential category fundamental to and universal in the human condition, um, and that it has a fundamental role in the configuration of every human society, then you have to go, okay, so when we think of modern alienation, when we think of where we are in our current situation, and we think of what the possibilities are for moving forward, this is central. And, and then for me, like, obviously there's this part of me that's like, wow, it's not though. It's, it's not like you'll, you'll get some anti-work people. You'll get some, you know, fully automated gay space luxury, you know, communist kind of people. You'll get some, uh, people who like, Oh, UBI and parental leave. That'll give people more time to do stuff and they'll have some leisure time. So there's people who are kind of in their own ways, kind of broaching the idea. But for me, it's just like the idea of like abolishing class society, what, what, just so that nobody feels like they're any lesser than anyone else or so no one can feel like they're better than anyone. I don't give a fuck about that. I want everyone to have their time energy and be able to use it f how they want. See, That's fucking doing, human freedom. But you have to realize what you're doing is, and, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying it's part of the whole thing. You want to install a new master signifier because if time energy was put in this privileged position that anchors other political struggles and other issues, then those meaning like those things take on a different inflection. Like they mean something different through that one being the, the master signifier. And like you're saying, it's not, the point is it's not absolute. It doesn't, but it's, it's a better groundless ground than other groundless grounds, given the parameters of our situation. And so this is why, again, like you try to talk to people about, you know, necessary labor time or, or, or labor power, anything, they don't care. But given our, the, given the material conditions of our symbolic order, i.e. our actual signifiers we use, that signifier has a lot more potential than a lot of the traditional Marxist signifiers. And I, I, and I think the, the, one of the main reasons it is, is beyond all the reasons that we just talked about, as far as like cultivating a demand or a need or a, a, that needs satisfaction or a, or sort of like a craving for something better. Um, here's the thing. Capitalism compared to a lot of other, social configurations is able to put yummy food in the hands of a lot of people like junk food. Yeah. It'll give you diabetes, but like it's fucking yummy. If you haven't had your 
palate, you know, uh, spoiled by snobby food. So like for me, it's like, oh my God, you know, like there's this part of me that could, I could just play World of Warcraft and eat McChickens, drink monsters and fucking die happy, honestly. But the thing is, is I got the bug for other things in the liberal arts. I got the bug for uh, philosophy specifically, but a lot of other things beyond that. And to the point now where it's like, uh, capitalism is not capable of even satisfying that one in the short term. With consumerism, it can at least satisfy a lot of people in the short term when it comes to basic consumption you know, of, of commodities. But guess what? I cannot fucking go into Walmart or anywhere else. It's not on Amazon. I've looked. Time Energy, you look it up. You're not going to fucking find it. You cannot buy Time Energy back. And then people could obviously say, and I've obviously gotten this response from like Austrian econ people, like libertarians and stuff. Well, you know, but capitalism actually does free up more time because, you know, fewer people actually have to dig those ditches now because you have these nice heavy machinery. Um, you know, in a sort of sense, obviously, these are labor-saving devices. The point is, is that, that the, every time we have labor-saving devices in capitalism, it doesn't free up time energy for anybody. That's, that's the fucking trick, is that every time we automate something, every time we replace like four tellers at, a, at, a, at a, you know, the, the checkout at a grocery store with like a machine, and now just one person has to watch six machines or whatever, like... Oh, I'm looking around. I don't find anybody has like a surplus of time energy, do, do they? No, they fucking don't. So capitalism is not able to satisfy this, even though capitalism is able to develop some cool labor-saving devices because they're privatized. We do not reap a social benefit from that. So, and you know, I would, and then obviously my response to anyone who's like, well, you know, China's doing pretty good, you know, like wages are going up and, you know, they're, they've got mass production and they've really advanced from being like a sort of like, well, they were underdeveloped and now they're like, they're, they're getting ahead of the United States. It's amazing. And, you know, also like that you can see that Lenin's Russia was able to, you know, industrialize so fast because, you know, central planning, it's actually got some real like benefits. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. That, without question, there's, there can be benefits to central planning. There's also drawbacks. I think seeing like a state gets into some of those, you know, uh, with the sort of high modern assumptions that planners usually bring to the table. There's certain fundamental things that they just don't understand usually, but there's definite gains that can come from centralization. Problem is, whether it's centralized or whether it's laissez-faire, those labor-saving devices and industries are not actually freeing up time energy. And yeah, uh, I actually, it was funny because Catrone had said offhandedly that Rosa Luxemburg and Lenin did have in mind like the abolition of the category of wage laborer, like in, in a way where he was talking about the form of labor itself being what's abolished. Yeah, but I, he, I don't, you know, obviously he's not he's not working with time energy theory, so it's like I uh, I don't I don't think you're gonna find in them like this idea though. Like yes, they want they want workers to be given their fair share, right? Like they want they want workers to have uh, empowerment and control over their own workplaces and they want them to not have to like sell themselves on this auction block they want them to have like reliable but the... I don't want to be a fucking worker yeah that's what we're fighting yeah I want to take bullshit jobs and eliminate them and then I want to take shit jobs and eliminate them to the 
nth degree that obviously cannot be completely done, but we can reduce basic societal functions to chores. They don't have to be a lifestyle. And, that, that, and you know, want to talk about a lack of radical imagination right there. The fact that that's just not on the table is like, yep, it's going to drive me crazy. So. So, okay. Take a breath. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> thank, right. hey, you got me talking about time energy. Thank you. So, but no, I, but I'm bringing it back to this. You are fighting to install a new master signifier. That's part of what it is because it changes the field of political discourse by introducing this one into it. And especially if it gets the upper hand and mm. it, it, it changes the whole field of meaning. And so look, I've got the, the quote, I think I've quoted it before, but Zizek says the multitude of floating signifiers of pre ideological elements is structured into a unified field through the intervention of a certain nodal point, the Lacanian point de Capitan, which quilts them and stops their sliding and fixes their meaning, right? So the whole point is, when you introduce time energy as a signifier in relationship to wage labor, in relationship to wages, in relation to the length of the working day, you start to go like, no, fuck work, fuck wage, period. Like, like you're saying, it's not about reforming it or giving like no we want to eliminate this shit as much as possible and you start to get this whole other field of meaning going based on this one coming to dominate the others and fix their meaning in a new way mm. and so like this Zizek says proto ideological elements his point is that master signifiers are ultimately what give other ordinary signifiers their ideological consistency which is to say it's what gives a whole bunch of loose unstable meaning a fixed stable consistency right now i'm not going to read the quote because it's too long and i'm not in like reading quote mode right now but in seminar three lacan has this great example there's a lot of good stuff in seminar three and his example of a quilting point, and just for listeners, here I'm using quilting point and master signifier as synonyms. If you listen to our last discussion on Zizek, Tom McGowan, there, there's Lacanians who want to make this big distinction, uh, uh, you know, dis, a big distinction between master signifier and quilting point. But Zizek, for example, doesn't make this distinction. He, he treats them the same. So if you're asking me where I stand on this position... I go back and forth on it a lot. And so right now I'm just for the sake of clarity, cause I'm just limiting what I'm talking about to Zizek and Lacan. I'm using them interchangeably. So Lacan gives a great example of a quilting point or a master signifier, and it's an actual highway. And this is what we also have to understand. A master signifier or a quilting point doesn't have to be a literal word. It can be an object or a thing that's functioning as a signifier, right? And so his whole point is, prior to the introduction of the highway system, roads were just roads. But once the highway system is there and has this central function, 
in the trans transportation in society, then standard roads now become back roads. And so they retroactively get changed. Like their, their function, their meaning, their place in society is altered through the introduction of a highway. And so you see something is, and we all know this, like our, our, when you're in the city, highways have a dominant position in your very field of orientation, in your field of meaning. And you, you they they anchor your bearing, like your, your in, in, in your location and where you are in the city. And so he's using the highway as an example of how other signifiers function in our minds and in our relations to other people. And so I don't know. I just love this. It's almost worth reading, but again, it's a long. If anybody wants to go read it, it's seminar three. And it's pages um, 291 to 292. All, a, it, all I got from that is that roads become master signifiers. What? No. So the highway, the highway is the master signifier. And the, the, the roads that were once just roads, through the introduction of the highway system, they become back roads or alternate routes or whatever uh, and the point is see how like once the highway system is in place it retroactively changes what the roads are now right yeah and and, and think about you know when you're in you, when you're in the city when you're in boise or whatever you know the highways they do give you a fundamental orientation they anchor your spatial locational intelligibility right in the same it's like basically like distance from a highway as a and then distance from like a good school are two of the main factors for most like home buying aged humans <laughs> like exactly probably See, parents those two are functioning as master signifiers in this particular context yeah well, they're the elements that are orienting how you the meanings of all the other things, all of the other factors. And so, see, I love when like this is one of the benefits of reading the seminars. You get these great examples that for like I've been reading Lacan religiously for six years. Why have I not heard of this highway example before? Right. Because to me, it really, I mean, this is a real concrete thing. I mean, look, I'm going to read a little bit of it. He says, <laughs> yeah, get do it. Houses are, built, houses are built alongside the highway. They rise up and spread out with no other function than to be looking at the highway. It's precisely because the highway is an undeniable signifier in human experience that it marks a stage in history. Like he thinks the introduction of the highway system is so profound, like, it, it defines a moment in history, right? Mm -hmm. um, the well, highway is thus a particularly tangible example of what I'm saying when I speak of the function of the signifier insofar as it polarizes meanings, hooks onto them, groups them in bundles. There is a real... Uh, oh, there is a real antinomy between the function of the signifier and the induction it exerts in the grouping of meanings. The signifier polarizes. It's the signifier that creates the field of meanings. 
like he comes out and says it and the whole point it polarizes right like think about again you, before the highway system you just had the road system but once the highway system's introduced you have highways and then you have roads right it, it creates a new distinction right it and it, it creates a new field of meaning based on that and so i just think this is a wonderful example he gives and i i sit there and i'm just like why the like you know, look, when you emerge from a path, a thicket, a, a shoulder, or a minor local road, you know immediately that you have come to a highway. The highway isn't something that extends from one point to another. It's a dimension spread out in space, uh, presenting uh, of a, a, an original reality. So the point is, like, the moment that you reach this master signifier, like, if, you, if you've gotten off the beaten track, if you've taken back roads, you don't know where you are, the moment you reach, like for me, if I was right, off in this... Independence or Raytown and somehow I got lost, which is funny because I know my town's like back of my hand, but if I got lost, the minute I find I-70, I know exactly where I'm at. Right. So, so it, I, actually, yeah, I've, I've really liked, I've really liked ever since I got lost in Chiang Mai a bunch uh, in Thailand. Uh, it, so I was already read. I had already read Being in Time once, and you know was was it, getting into continental philosophy and stuff. I was there to study Buddhism, and uh, was sort of an exchange student. Um, and I was just there for like a month, and it was it was a great time because it's it's cool to be at a place when you're not just dressed up like an American you know, walking around, you actually get a uniform for the school. So like people know you're like a part of the school and they treat you different than if you're just walking around in shorts and flip flops and whatever, you know, and you know, in Thailand, the, the Chinese middle-aged tourists, uh, middle-class middle-aged Chinese tourists are the annoying boomer tourists that they have to deal with a lot more than Americans. So I mean, because it's pretty much like if you're a middle-class Chinese tourist, like Thailand's like one of your main destinations and and it just drives them crazy because, you know, like Chinese people will show up in like their, their extended golf cart, get out like 20 people strong and they'll all take photos of you like you're an exotic bird and, and not say anything to you. And I was on the receiving end of that and... But, but you know they do it to everybody though and so it's it's funny to not it, it's nice because i've traveled other places where americans are the dumbasses and so it was nice to be in a place where it's like ah oh, an american they don't they don't hate you half as much as they hate these other people you know and so that was you know it was kind of the experience but part of you know getting off campus and going out and just kind of exploring um for me was i wanted to get lost and so like i got a scooter and to me, I was like, I'm just going to get lost in the city. Like I, I had read about traveling and like the idea of like being like getting lost and then having to find your way back is like a, is a, is a good exercise. And obviously like not knowing Thai, like it's a fuck it. That is a hard language. I mean, people talk about how hard of the, all these other languages are, but like Thai is still not even on Duolingo. It's, it's, it's a, it's a real monster of a language. And anyway, but you know, getting my bearings in a city though. Like, it really comes down to, yeah, you, you learn about a couple of main roads. You learn about a couple of main landmarks. And then any fucking where that you are in the city, if you can find those landmarks, then you know where those roads are, and then you know where home is. Right? Exactly. And the thing I mean, is, so is, 
this is how language functions too, right? And so that's what you're saying about that's the exactly where I'm going. Lacan's point is that the highway organizes, fixes, orients, and anchors all of the streets, roads, signs, and places within a city by providing them with an overarching coherence. So if somebody is trying to introduce you to the main anchoring points in the city of language, and those points automatically bring to mind gulags, starvation, bread lines, you have to wonder if those are the best anchoring points to try to get people to go along with. Think yeah. of the way you're in Thailand and you, you're, you're, you're getting those main, those main orientating positions or, or we'll just call them signifiers, right? If you're trying to introduce somebody into an emancipatory discourse and those signifiers bring to mind dictators and gulag, you just, are we really helping ourselves? Right. Yeah. You're, tr you're, and that's the thing is like, you're always going to be able to convince like one out of a hundred, one out of a thousand kind of depends on your skill level. kind of depends on about the... the average mother who's trying to provide a single mother trying to provide for her kids. Yeah. Not some edgy teenager. Yeah. Or, or, or not me. Like, I don't know, a few years ago. Right. In a, in a sort of sense, like this is not just or me a few years ago. Right. So, so I'm saying like, it, it, we're not trying to convince, like, I get the context. I don't like, yeah, I, it, it's complicated and blah, blah, but we're not, you're not trying to win me. Right. That's, and that's, and people do act like, oh, well, you just don't get it because it's about, it's about you. No, and it's not about me. It's about me it's looking not. at you saying you're not capable of selling this to the average person. And, and then they go, well, I have no problem selling this to sell. No, um, uh, I, I, I work with them every day. You're not selling it. To I them. know a lot of people. I, I know a lot of fucking people and they're not just people. I'm, who I'm sorry. That was, you didn't even hear it, but I'm sorry. That was what, that was almost a Trump moment. I know a lot of people, <laughs> so many people, so many more than you. It's a, it's a, it's a bad deal. What you're talking about. It's not going to sell. It's going to go bankrupt. Like my five companies did. So oh, sad. Wait. So sad. So terrible. Yeah. So at the point that we're doing Trump impersonations, the stream's over, but I don't want to close it out until we've talked about, cause I did say that we would touch on the Doug Lane thing. So it's not, I did. Didn't I talk about any of the other movies. I'm. I, we, we'll do a little marathon where we sprint through those. I just want to. I, I feel like we said everything that that uh, current affairs article deserved, uh, which was like fuck that. Um, what a stupid fucking and article. You know that I wrote something that I haven't shared or anything that is. It's like yeah. You. you I'll tell you what Zizek's for, fucker. Yeah, you're sitting. Yeah, this this what is Zizek for article in the current affairs. It's a hyper. It's a rhetorical question because obviously they're coming along. To, this person's coming along to say not worth anything. Well, guess what? Uh, Mikey's going to beg to differ. He's got a fucking article that's going to set the record straight, and I think people are going to love it. In fact, I, I it's 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 been a really big deal for me the fact that I read that at the beginning of this year. So, yeah, I know, and I I've known for a long time you really want to talk more about that one, and you've had to not go into it, but. Well, it's, it's going to be dropping soon. You decided to publish it instead of, you decided to self-publish it instead of 
Because it was going to go into a journal, then you you decided to go this route. No, it did go into a journal. It's just the journal it went into is a Spanish journal, which I can't believe I've had something translated into Spanish, especially when it hasn't been published in English. But at this point, I probably am just going to throw it up on the blog. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And what's the name of it? Uh, got, well, hold on. I... It's like Let me see. it was, I, I, it, yeah. Because we I, look here's what it, it there's the short version of it, and then I'm planning on turning it into a book. But I can't turn it into a book right now because I have to finish my fucking main book that I've been working on for four <laughs> years. But yeah. this this will probably more than likely be my second book. The blog version is going to be called uh, "Wage Labor and Jouissance: Why the Left Needs Zizek to Understand Workers." There we go. And with so, the, so the which is a nice little segue. So obviously you've got an answer to what Zizek for, but the this is also an answer to a, a sort of it, it wasn't met, you wrote this before this was ever a thing, but it actually also mm-hmm. happens to answer the sublation media uh, question: Is Lacan an enemy of the workers? And in on the thumbnail it shows Lacan with his twisted cigar, and it's and it's got a little. Uh, quote uh, like quote box coming out that says did i ruin marxism okay so the, the i said in the the letter i sent out about this stream that i'm not saying that doug is one of these social discourse cops but this is a video that's over an hour long where that's the supposed leading question and they didn't talk about any of Lacan's concepts, or in other words, Lacan-ceps. A whole video, no Lacan-ceps. So, <laughs> so we, we wanted to talk about it briefly, but you you, re-watch, you watched it in preparation for this, and uh, I, I watched a part of it in preparation for this. Actually, I, I know I double-sped through the whole thing on my second time. So let's, let's just talk about it. Like, let's be fair to what they actually were doing, and then let's, 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 I actually respond to this. So a bunch of people within with, let me just say as preface though, that like within like three days, like a bunch of people had sent this t- video to Mikey and myself. And so, cause we we've been doing all this shit about Lacan and Zizek. And then this, this always oh, Lacan and enemy of the workers comes out. And then everyone's like sending it to us. Like it's got something important to say. And so I watch it and I'm like, what's it saying? What? I don't understand why people are sending me this. I feel like I'm being trolled right now. What the fuck is this supposed to say? What is it saying? Mikey, what do you think it's saying? Because you obviously think it's saying something. So I, the video is a lot of contextualization. Okay, and so for me, for our purposes, it's important to focus on the question. Uh, it's more important to focus on the question than what's said in the video. Because again, what they're doing in the video is trying to do this Broad contextualization, Lacanian psychoanalysis, Frankfurt School, um, structuralism, post-structuralism, and they they have this broad, the, the, this zoomed out uh, contextualization they're doing. Um, so Doug said he decided to have the conversation because one of the founders of Platypus Society and who is now the editor in chief at Sublation Magazine. A guy named Spencer Leonard is not a fan of Zizek and Lacan. And 
we know that Doug has done a lot. He's had Zizek on, uh, done a lot of videos with Zizek and uh, ha- works with Lacanians and everything. So um, Doug, Doug has said that, you know, the reason he got into Marxism was through Zizek. Right. So there, there's, I guess, this growing talk among leftists, whether or not Lacanian psychoanalytic theory is relevant or important to leftist goals, right? And so Doug brought on uh, two guys from Platypus who are, uh, you know, who have done done some work in studying psychoanalysis and Lacan and all that, and that's basically what they're having a discussion about. But so um, Andreas, I, I believe, is one of the names, um, and says that we must approach Lacan as a symptom i.e. the leftist political interest in Lacanian theory is a symptom of the regression of world revolution. Right. right? And this is minute 22. And I, look, I think that's an interesting idea. Like, why why does the left feel this... Why are they... Why is there this compulsion to study Lacan? Well, it, 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 it's... I, I like the idea of Lacan being a symptom of the failure of us to rely on old leftist narratives or you know the world revolution hasn't happened um why what's what's gone wrong with the left so the need for lacan indicates there's some deadlock in the left itself i'm oh, that's cool i like that idea um by this he means that the left is currently interested in lacan due to the seeming impossibility of an international revolution which is we could say is lacan a symptom of capitalist realism mm. right Mm-hmm. And, uh, Andreas uh, draws a distinction between the Frankfurt School's relation to psychoanalysis and the Lacanian left's relation to it. Uh, there's a discussion of Wilhelm Reich's and why you use psychoanalytic theory to help build the German Communist Party, um, which was that was necessary to, necessary due to a deep crisis of international socialism, i.e., lots of workers voted for fascists. Like that's what Reich was concerned with. And adorable. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and capitalist society ended up using Freudian theory to its advantage. For Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, if you take up that perspective, right, of theirs, you can say, like, oh, well, in advertising, we see this in Mad Men, but uh, in advertising, consumerization, uh, culture industry, etc., you can see how Freud's insights into the unconscious were employed in such a way as to aid capitalism opposed to threaten it. Well, and something and, else something else that they both, I think that Andreas Wintersperger and also Stefan Hain touch on a couple times, uh, and I think Doug ends up kind of responding to it, but it's sort of a thread that they kind of come back to, is also that it is, that psycho an, psychoanalysis, they, they talk about it being a, a, a way of, uh, it, it, they say it's not critical, it's not inherently critical. There's nothing resistant in it. In fact, they, they kind of bring in that, like, it's about getting people back to work kind of thing, which is obviously something we have to say about uh, a lot of psychiatry today. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the definitions of a lot of disorders are really just behavioristic, defini- char- you know, it's a way of characterizing someone's behavior pattern that makes them not amenable to capital. And so that's become a problem. So now they have a diagnosis so that we can get them the drugs that they need so that they can get back to work. Right now, obviously, it doesn't have to be that vulgar, but it often is. It often is. 
Right. But well, well okay. So, yeah, that's okay, that's just being applied. That's just being applied though to psychoanalysis, and obviously there's a degree to which that's the case in, uh, especially Freudian analysis. I don't know. Like I don't know if it's true of Lacanian analysis. I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on that. But it is a it is a common sort of refrain that you know all of this stuff is really just about uh, it's just about getting people back to work. So. Well, and so I mean. Lacan also solved this problem of how Freud was absorbed into capitalist society, right? Like that's for Lacan, that's what ego psychology does. It's like it's analysis turned into profit making enterprise. And so for for both we could say Adorno and Horkheimer and Lacan, psychoanalysis had to be saved from its capitalistic appropriation. Now, okay, so they they, they raise these uh, these important questions and they uh, they go on to discuss them. So, but as far as the question, um, is Lacan the enemy of the workers? Or I think we could make it more broad and say, is theory the enemy of the workers? Right. Mm. To me, if we if we start to zoom in, in, instead of just doing contextualization, and we say, all right, let's talk about the concepts themselves. The question is, is the concept of objet petit a the enemy of the workers, or the concept of death drive? or the concept of a master signifier, like, are, is the concept of objet petit a counter-revolutionary? Like, I, when you, when you start to frame it in terms of these specific concepts, I don't, it's harder for me to see how that becomes an enemy of the worker. In fact, it seems to me to give the worker insights into a lot of, uh, issues that arise when workers try to organize right and why look death drive especially why why do people enjoy undermining what's in their own self-interest right well we see this a lot in politics and at our work and i think these concepts have a fundamental importance in showing us why human beings do the shit they do that doesn't immediately make any sense like these psychoanalytic concepts, these, these Lacanian, uh, Lacancepts. I love that. That's a great, uh, <laughs> neologism. I, uh, I think I get that from Anne, actually. At least she was saying that if we ever do a conference on Lacan, we have to call it the Lacanference. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, the, uh, you start realizing like, wait, so are you telling me it's, it's, it makes workers worse off to understand what makes, human beings i.e workers tick it, it, it just so so what workers should just be without concepts yeah or be... yeah is 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 uh, is it in the interests of workers or the people who are trying to organize them uh to not understand human subjectivity and libidinal economy and that's really what it boils down to for me and uh, again you know, Marx is one of my favorite thinkers. Reading Marx changed my life. But there is a lack in Marx himself, which is a lack of theory of human subjectivity. He wants society to be emancipatory. He wants the proletariat to engineer and, and perform this emancipatory gesture. But more and more, like, you read Marx, there's just, where's... 
where's his theory of human subjectivity? I mean, there's a little bit in the manuscripts with the alienation stuff, but other than that, he doesn't really have a concept of why human beings do what they do or what makes them tick. And I think this is why a lot of Marxist organization fails. Like they don't get like Marx kind of, because he was, he was playing the game of I'm going to take Adam Smith and Ricardo in classical political economy at its word and then I'm going to show how it undermines itself through these built-in intrinsic deadlocks or contradictions, right? Well, okay, if you take classical political economy at its word, then you take its theory of the subject at its word, which is just homo economicus. I am a rational agent pursuing my rational ends right. and what's in my self-interest, and I go into the market, I make a fair exchange, and through perceive, pursuing my own individualistic self-interest, uh, we, we, we head towards a good society for all. And mm-hmm. like, so <laughs> this concept, this liberal concept of the subject of, of homo economicus, of the rational agent, um, that is just, I rationally pursue my self-interest. Well, the second you get into psychoanalysis, you know human beings aren't that. Right. They're not rationally pursuing what's in their self-interest, at least not entirely. And once this other side of, uh, uh, of human subjectivity emerges, like, yes, there is a sense where we pursue our self-interest and we pursue what we in Lacanian Freudian circles call pleasure, right? But then there's the pursuit of this other thing called jouissance. And death drive and it's our enjoyment we get from undermining our self-interest undermining our safety undermining our security undermining our well-being that's where our excessive enjoyment actually lies and so if you don't understand how human beings are split subjects who are not just pursuing their self-interest but also pursuing the enjoyment of undermining their self-interest then I, you know, you're just going to keep bumping your head against the wall. Why won't people just do what's in their self-interest? They don't enjoy that. That's not the source of the enjoyment. In fact, it's contradicting that that is the source of enjoyment. And so there's a lot more to it, of course. But this fundamental insight of Lacan's is, to me, I mean, I think it's absolutely essential to be, you know, like... Zizek has said, to be a Marxist today, one has to go through Lacan. And, again, there's so much packed inside that, but this is one reason why I agree with that. Someone someone in chat was asking if you've done a stream with someone named Aaron, but I can say Mikey's never done a stream with anybody but me, except for one time uh, when we went on to Adam's podcast, The the Acid Left. Yeah, I mean that's not not to say he won't ever, but the no at this point, all, all your Mikey, you got to get it here, folks. Um, but, so look, so ultimately, uh, like I get. Yeah, I I just want to say like a, a big part of this is also when when it, our frustrations earlier talking about the signifier, uh, and the importance of it, and how it is. No, you don't just get to give it the meaning that you want to. Um, also comes back to like, yeah, so 
what kind of a theory of subjectivity are you are you presupposing when you say that you can just you know you say well historically my definition has a better like basis in in you know the the, the history of the the political struggle okay so okay if like, granting that it's true um, you're you're assuming that people in mass um, are just operating under false consciousness and that as soon as they get you know that they get enlightened by you showing them the real deal um, then they'll get it and then they'll and then they'll then they'll go for what's in their best interest then they'll go for what's the subjectively real definition right I well, just, yeah, and so, I mean, what this, you're getting at is not this is not humans. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so I mean, for Zizek, every symbolic order, every ideology, is not just meaning. This is the whole point of Zizekian theory of ideology. It's not just meaning. It's also jouissance. It's enjoyment. And so you can point out basic truths about what's going on. You can point out the facts, and yet people still won't go for them if their enjoyment is aligned in a certain way. So th this is part of why you can't just get people to do what's in their self-interest um, if you point it out. Well, if, if that's not how their enjoyment functions, then the meaning doesn't, doesn't matter. So that's where there's these fundamental insights that Lacanian Zizekian theory have into human motivations human desire etc and without them i think you're just stuck with some naive theory of why won't people do what they should do yeah so that's uh that's it for for that i think and now we can just say like all right there's a bunch of movies and shows out right now uh, spoiler I feel, alert! Spoiler I, alert! Yeah, spoiler alert! I felt like uh, Ozark season four was a huge disappointment, and I felt like Russian Doll was from the first hold couple. On, hold on. Give, give, give people. I, all right, we did spoiler alerts. Just tell them what we're going to talk about. So if they want to. Be Listen, out, they can I, be I'm out. just going to straight up tell you, like, if I could redo the last two months, what I would not have watched and what I would watch. And we'll also talk about what we loved about the things that we did love. We might poo-poo a little bit on a couple of things, but for the most part, it's just kind of like, let's just do like a quick pop culture moment. Like, because it's not every day that I've actually seen some stuff that's current and timely and relevant and that you have also so that we can actually talk about it. That's not normal. So let's do it. Right, well. It'll be Ozark, Russian doll, everything, everywhere, all at once and multiverse of madness. We already talked about a So, right. Um, so, and I, I divide, I divide that up into two categories. One is Netflix fails and the other one is multiverse movies because uh multiverse movies is actually if you think about it a relatively new genre of sorts and i fucking love it i love it so much but also <laughs> it would benefit from some philosophers sitting on their uh they i i think in the same way that edward bernays had uh like a a huge uh, like a uh, he he had a retainer with the columbia rope company uh that paid him 
more than the president of a company was paid just so that he could be on call so they could run ideas past him. And that's at the end of the day, like if you haven't spent the last 10 to in Mikey's case, like what, 17 years studying the uh, history of ideas and subjectivity and you, you don't have like super nuanced theories of subjectivity, um, you you probably want to have someone who has on call so you can run your fucking characters by them. Just saying. So, you know, but, you know, and, and, and to a certain degree, there's the, the cinematic masterpieces that are coming out and they're mind-bogglingly beautiful and there's really, really cool visual effects going on and just like epic shit like I've never seen before. But, you know, and, 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 and they're, but they, but they end up having like a solid eight as opposed to a 10, just because at the end of the day, they're not really thinking. I should just say that they're not thinking, but you know, there's subjectivity is lacking. It's uh, especially everything everywhere all at once. I actually came out of that being like, that's a 10. And then we had a conversation and I'm like, oh, okay, you've got some points here. So let's get into it. Which one do you want to start well, out with? Um, well, okay. I mean, Ozark, and Russian doll. I mean, we can do those first because I don't think we have a lot to say so much. It's just that for me, the failure of a, uh, and I've loved Ozark. I really have. But the, my big issue was the series finale felt like a season finale. You don't feel a, a real sense of closure. It just comes out of nowhere and it's like, Oh, okay. Um, the end and and, the, and there's a know, lot of like... really fucking weird plot shit too like like the way like okay so was it episode like you know because the season gets re, re, you know continued after what it was shut down for COVID I think so it's being continued and you know it, we've got Ruth who's like you know an awesome character I've, I've liked her as a character but you know she's she's gonna go kill this guy this uh this uh cartel guy who killed her cousin and they do this whole thing where she goes and like she kills him she just walks up and shoots him but the whole thing was her just imagining that she was doing it but they did not in any way make that clear that she was just imagining it there's just weird stuff like that all throughout the 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 rest of the season where it was just like they had an idea and then they just completely failed on execution and then there's other things where it's like people are at a, they're having a fight. So for instance, the son, um, what's his name? Is it like Noah or some shit? Like what's, what's her, what's her, uh, oh, I forget. The, like... the, the boy, whatever. So it's a, you know, cause Ozark's about uh, a family that's laundering money for drug cartels. And so it's kind of got the breaking bad and queen of the South and weeds vibe. Like it's about drug kingpins and, and, and Jonah. relatively, Jonah. Oh, Jonah. Relatively normal people who got dragged into somehow the drug craziness. And so... Cartel. Yeah. And so, you know, it's intense. It's got some real intense parts. But so anyway, Jonah, he's really mad at his mom who basically offed her brother, like his uncle. And so he's, you know, she gave him up to the, to the cartel, you know, as a sort of trade because someone had to die because they had... Whatever. You know, it's just like a symbolic exchange, you know. Well, he's not too happy about that for obvious reasons. You know, she killed her fucking brother. Um, and so he moves out of his parents' house and he's living in a motel and he's like 
not talking to them, not going over there. And then just like next scene, he's actually over there and he's having dinner with them. And it just, it, it, there's no fucking reason. It's so anyway, there's a bunch of these things where it's like, I just don't understand what happened at the last half of the season when obviously it's, and, and now it's not being continued. And when I found out that it wasn't being continued, I was like, well, fucking good riddance at this point, honestly. Yeah, but didn't you, but didn't you feel like when you saw the ending that you're like, that's the ending of the season, not the show. Yeah. Well, they were going to do a, a, a fifth season though. Oh, so you thought that this was supposed to be the ending of the actual show. That's what yeah. you were that's what you're saying earlier. No, no, they were actually planning on a season five. It just didn't get renewed because I think they just dropped the ball in terms of its production in a lot of ways. So and it was a real bummer because like if you've gone through like the I don't the, know about that. Like this is one of their most popular shows. Like I, I heard that I was yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. I heard that the showrunners themselves had just straight up decided, like, no, this is going to be it. We're done. We're not going to do a fifth season. Um, again, I mean, it it feels like there should be a fifth season. Will there be a fifth season to Ozark is what I typed in. And the answer was, there are no plans for Ozark season five. The show has concluded. Season four was the last season of the show. The show was planned for only four seasons. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's completely different information than I got last time I looked this up. Last time I looked it up, they said in short. Shut the fuck up. Okay. Somehow I made the computer start reading it. But no, Um. The I had read the complete app of the opposite. So thanks a lot, Google. That's what happens when you get your answers from search bars, I guess. I'm telling you, I, as far as I understood, that's how they w- wanted to fucking go out. And if that's I'm how, just saying, it's not a very fulfilling ending. No, not at all. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense at all. So, I mean, and it's also just like, also like, why the fuck are all these like main cartel bosses going around without any serious bodyguards, like? Fucking dude goes up into Dar- uh, Darlene's house and by himself, and then she just shotguns him out. Like you don't. That's not. There's nothing realistic about it. Like I, I to me, like I could see some. Like I don't mind. Magical realism is cool. Um, you know, like Tom Cruise doing flips over exploding vehicles is cool. Neo dodging bullets is cool. But there has to be some stake. And there has to be some sense of plausibility and realism. There's not, there just wasn't a real, the reality principle wasn't even in effect. Yeah, so. Uh, yeah. Um, and here's my whole thing. The, the point is, it was such a satisfying show up till the end that that's the, that's my disappointment with it. Because I love the first three seasons. Right, and we would both agree that, say, Breaking Bad, it might not have concluded in the ways that we wanted to, but it concluded in a way that made sense. It was like the logical conclusion. Breaking Bad gave the viewer closure. Whether or not you liked how it ended or whatever, it was it, it did have a good sense of closure. Like, okay, we this is wrapped up, we're done, this is it. Yeah. So, sucks Ozark. I really was hoping, I was really stoked, actually. I was hoping for a lot more, so... All right. Um, 
Russian doll, you finished Russian it. Doll. So you enjoyed it all the way through and then thought about it. And then you're so, but I, I didn't even make it all the way through. So how about you talk about it so, first? So you wrote an yeah, article, Russian you, doll. you wrote an article about the first Russian doll. It's a fantastic article about uh, Elaine Badu's concept of love and you, you applied it to Russian dolls. So that was season one though. And then yeah. you, you know, the same way that you talked about it, I think you might've even said it in Russian doll, the way that you said it in your, your post about, um, squid game, you know, we'll see where it goes in season two, right? Well, now we've seen how it goes. Right. So what's the deal here? Like quick, quick little breakdown oh. of, of your article and season one, just for anyone who's never seen this 